0: You you, 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 you know,
1: Hello and welcome to episode 337 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored is, by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carzino. And we're coming to you back in Renton, Washington. Hello. Home up, the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks, the NFC West, first place. Wow! Seattle, They're raining. Seahaw-
2: Still the NFC West first place.
1: <laughs> Multiple weeks in a row raining. first place in the NFC West. Well, we've got a treat for you if you like the Seahawks or if you hate the Seahawks. I don't know. Somewhere in between. Uh, we're going to talk about them with third Pelton brother Ben Baldwin coming back to discuss how wrong we were about the team in the preseason. We'll get right into that in a little bit here. But first, we're going to get to the toast. And what we're drinking, I guess, because we have this week from our friends at Stoop Brewing. Hello. The Time to Vote IPA. However you choose to celebrate your right to vote, we think enjoying our Time to Vote IPA will make the experience just that much more fulfilling. This beer won't remove unsavory characters from office, but your vote just might. And the beer is delicious, so it's a win-win. Hops Cryopop, Citra, and HBC 630 for your citrus, passion fruit, and stone fruit pleasure. Uh, so it's it's too late for us to remind you to vote. This is that's already a card. But uh, mm-hmm. hopefully that's what people are looking to the Pelton
0: cast for. <laughs> Reminder <you> to vote.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, our first test this week. Hey, congratulations to UW men's soccer for clinching the Pac-Twelve title with Thursday's win over UCLA mean, wow. the conference's automatic birth in the NCAA tournament. It is the fourth conference championship in program history, UW having previously won in two thousand. 2013 and 2019
2: wow that 2000 team do you remember them
1: <laughs> i don't great no, team no not, not at all that was my my sophomore year of college do not remember it at all all right wow, next you were up.
2: there i wasn't even there for one of those conference championships at uw you were there and you didn't even go that's true shame
1: all right next up a congrats to Legion of Boom member Cam Chancellor, who was inducted in the Virginia Tech Hall of Fame last weekend, right alongside Bruce Arians.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: was
0: the like first Bruce Arians series was Frieder elected last week?
1: I think it
2: was
0: Or he, he's also in it? No, he
1: was elected last week. They just just now
2: got around you. How old is Bruce Arians? <laughs> it's, a, it's a fair question, actually. Wow, you're telling me I've got a lot of time before I can be elected to the University of Washington Hall of Fame.
1: Yeah, well, you're gonna need to coach at least one Super Bowl champion before. Did you he get do this. anything at Virginia Tech? Did he ever coach at Virginia Tech? Well, I think he played at Virginia Tech. Maybe I don't know. Maybe, maybe he coached there. They
0: didn't
2: see me on those IMA fields. I had at least one tipped ball. <laughs> One completion for seven yards in a co-ed game. Lots of people
1: in the Husky Hall of Fame based on their
2: eye (laughs) track. Damn. (laughs) There was one game, a championship game on Husky Stadium Field. Uh, I did not play, but I was there. I attended. (laughs) I was suited up. I wasn't technically on the team.
1: Okay, as a senior in 1974, Arians was the starting quarterback in a wishbone offense. That season, he completed fifty three of one hundred and eighteen passes <laughs> for nine hundred and fifty two yards with three interceptions, three touchdowns, and seven interceptions. I feel like I could have done that. Put me in the Hall of Fame, Virginia Tech. Arians held the record for most QB rushing touchdowns in a season with eleven, which wasn't broken until two thousand sixteen. Somehow, Mike Vick. <laughs> <Three touchdowns, laughs> rushing touchdowns. What? That's Bruce Arians. This is the most amazing stat. <laughs> this is even better than the thing about Sean McVay being the Georgia State Player of the Year over NFL star. Hopefully. Kelvin Johnson? What? I think it was Megatron (laughs) that he was the Georgia State player of the year over.
2: I'd take Megatron as a coach. (laughs) 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 More on that
1: later. We learned learned a lot there. Wow. Wow. Mike
2: Vick really did not <laughs> touchdowns touch, touch the Bruce Arians, but the real shocking thing is that it took this long. What did Bruce Arians do in the last year where they were just like, "You're finally in, Bruce"? He had to win
1: that hall, he had to win that Super Bowl, and then have the month and then of take November, a year, a week off in November. So, <laughs> I guess that
2: makes sense. He won the Super Bowl, then he was coaching the year following, so then he did another year after that, coaching in. The, he was the coach of the Cardinals when they went to the Super Bowl. Mm. i think he was I wasn't he i think so
1: who was their coach i don't know that was a very long time ago
2: it wasn't that long ago was it
1: two-time coach of the year though
2: i just love that that virginia tech was like he, he had to be the coach of that team but that I, Virginia i don't think so no. who was ken Wizenhun? no way they would like ken wisenhunt in a super bowl no fucking way absolutely not Maybe he was the coordinator of the Steelers and they let
1: him go in the Super Bowl. He did win two Super Bowls. Yeah, the Steelers, he was coaching for the Steelers against the Cardinals in that Super Bowl, right? He was assistant coach. Yes. He was never the coach. Yes. Sorry, assistant coach. Yes. He was on staff.
2: Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Ken Wisman. Was the coach of the Cardinals in a Super Bowl? Maybe that's why Bruce Arians isn't in the Virginia Tech, or wasn't in the Virginia Tech Hall of Fame. Yeah. Where they're like, "This fucking guy took the team to the Super Bowl, and you couldn't." <laughs> well, there you go. He's a better runner than Mike Vick, though. All right. Lastly, this week, when you're saying loves to punt. Better runner than Mike Vick.
1: And congratulations to Julio Rodriguez and Scott Service, who were officially named among the three finalists for AL Rookie. And manager of the year, respectively. I was nervous about that one. Yeah, Julio was a little <laughs> dicey there. You never knew. Honestly, Jeremy Pena is really good. Like He's he's very good. But to be top three, it's Pena, Rutschman, and, yeah. and Julio, right? So, eat it, Bobby Witt Jr. Had
2: kind of a bad year.
1: All right, with that, let's get to our interview. Well, for this midseason check-in on the Seahawks, uh, at a little bit past the halfway point of their season, at the halfway point of the NFL season, since many other teams have had buys, we're thrilled to welcome back to the pod from rbsdm.com and contributor to The Athletic, Ben Baldwin.
3: Thanks for having me. This I think this is going to be a lot more uh, cheerful than the last time I was on, which is right before the season started. I, I don't think many of us had uh, super high expectations for the Seahawks, but it's been a lot more fun than uh, we expected.
1: Or less ben. cheerful because we have to talk about how wrong we were.
3: <laughs>
2: Then <laughs> I have some terrible news for you.
1: Uh-oh.
3: The Seahawks are good. The Seahawks are good. Hey, I, I jumped on board uh, let's see, two weeks ago before the Giants game when I, I guaranteed a 20-point victory, and they, they fell short of that. But um yeah, si- since then I I I've um I bought into the Seahawks being a good football team.
2: What was the exact moment that I that I'm gonna start? <clears throat> I was the earliest adopter to the, oh, Seahawks yeah, for on sure. the season season. Uh, For me, it was, I think, the end of the Lions game. I was just like, wow, I truly care whether they win this game or not. Like, something about that game, just seeing the offense happen for a couple of weeks in a row, it was like, this is fun, right? That game was objectively fun, no matter what, right? And then by the time we got to the Saints, which I think was the next week, right? Yep, I was yep. like, I'm in. I am in on this team all of a sudden. And have been. I've been rewarded pretty much nonstop from that moment. Kevin, when did you jump on board?
1: We talked about it on the pod. It was at the end of the first half of the Saints game when instead of playing conservatively, <laughs> they tried to go for a touchdown and, and accomplished it. Uh, it as they let Geno cook. And I was still let down in the second half of that game by their defense gets Taysom Hill. But since then... Also, also strongly rewarded.
3: Yeah, I guess I was later than you guys. So, so there's the Alliance game, the Saints game, and like they, they were in close games against two bad teams without their entire wide receiver, wide receiver rooms, basically. The week after that, they beat the Cardinals, who are probably bad. And then what finally sold me was the convincing win over the Chargers the following week. And now after the Cardinals-Chargers- Giants and now Cardinals again game. That's four straight wins of double digits. And like you can say what you want about the Giants and Cardinals, which are three of those games, they're probably not good teams. But if you win a lot of games by double digits, then you're probably like at worst an average team and probably even a good team. And look, the
1: advanced stats reflect it now Seahawks up to fifth in DVOA. Wow, fifth Fifth overall in DVOA. Despite somehow having the third easiest schedule, according to DVOA thus far, uh, they make the playoffs in 89% oh of football God. outsider simulations, winning oh the division 64% of the time and earning a top two seed 25% of the time.
2: My God, where would this rank as far as, I'm sure you don't have this off the top of your head. There's the Did they win the back-to-back DVOA championships or was it three years in a row?
1: Uh, I think they won it in 2015. Is or they won it four years? Yeah, it was four
2: years. Yeah, Yeah, four four years in a row. row. Yeah. So they won DVOA championships four years in a row. Yeah. Is this the best team outside of those four years?
3: No. No. No.
2: (laughs) DVOA wise, (laughs) is this the best team in this moment? Is would fifth rank the best DVOA for any other Seahawks team outside of those four years in a row?
1: I'm pretty sure it wouldn't. I only looked at where this offense ranked because I was curious about that. And I think there's a couple of interesting things about that, which we'll, uh, which we'll get to in a second here. I mean, the defense is the best that it's been in a long period of time. But I still think probably 2016
2: <laughs> in this season. <laughs> season that included the yeah. Lions game and Taysom Hill that you said the defense is the best it's been in a long time.
1: Well, no, actually, you know, it it is tied for the best that they've been in DVOA rank. You know, what season it was that they were fifth? Let Russ cook. Let Russ cook. Two thousand twenty. <laughs> but they were they were better by total DVOA that season than they are this season. But yes, this is now tied in terms of rank for the second best of the Pete Carroll era. Or the these the,
0: Not the second it's tied best. for the best of the they Pete were the Carroll
1: photo side of season. <laughs> outside of the four run. years
2: they were the best team in the nfl yes. this is the best they've been
1: yes still though pretty amazing all things considered where we came into this season at i mean i i did think that was interesting so the seahawks offense if you look at like is straight dvoa is supposed to rank they're the same rank as last season they're actually a percentage point worse in dvoa which i think would be very hard to convince seahawks fans of if you talked about last year's offense as frustrating as it was but uh, a couple of factors that go into that. Number one, offense is down around the league, even though it's gone back up a little bit the last couple of weeks. We'll, we'll talk about some of the reasons for that at the quarterback position later in this, in this interview. Uh, And then number two, The strength of schedule, as I mentioned, dramatically different from the past few seasons where the Seahawks have faced some of the hardest schedules because they've been in the NFC West. All of a sudden now, having only played the 49ers once and the Cardinals twice, and the rest of that fourth-place schedule from last year, the Seahawks have had an extremely favorable schedule thus far, as we anticipated coming in.
3: And this, now that you say this, this is kind of worryingly familiar to the uh, 2020 season where they look really good on offense against a lot of defenses that weren't very good, but then hadn't played the Rams yet. And that's also what has happened this time. Now the Rams as a football team aren't as good as they were that year, but their defense is still pretty good. So it'll be interesting to see how the defense does against the Rams. And then of course the 49ers again, who they did not score an offensive point against uh, in week two.
1: But that was before Gino was unleashed.
3: (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean
2: (laughs) It's been totally different teams who've been on, on the strength of schedule, right? Like, it's been radically different than what we would have anticipated going into the season. We were looking at it where we were like, we know the NFC West is good, but there's these other non-conference games or whatever that might be questionable. Now it's the NFC West games that have gotten easy. I mean, they played the Cardinals twice who your stat Ben that you showed about how the Cardinals were far and away the best team in the NFL at this point last year. (laughs) And now they're an atrocity, right? It's been unfortunate for us as fans to have had to have watched the Cardinals twice this year.
1: Hold on a note on the Cardinals in their DVOA. There are three teams behind the Cardinals in DVOA. One of them has a first-year head coach. The other two have already fired their head coaches this season.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And the Cardinals have their coach and GM locked up for a long time, right? So (laughs) they are what they are right now.
1: I don't know if it's going to be like a college football style spy yeah. out for Cliffs Kingsbury at all. At some point, I I I am so fascinated to watch Hard Knocks in season oh, with yes. the Arizona Cardinals premiering the week after they lost by two touchdowns <laughs> to the Seahawks. Amazing content,
3: I am sure. It's not just the NFC West that's been worse than we expected. It's also the AFC West. So we the Broncos and Chargers were supposed to oh, be, yeah. supposed to be good teams, and they Raiders, yeah, and. Well, one of us had the Raiders under lock, right? But, um,
1: <laughs> but even you didn't think
3: they were going to be a bottom seven no. team by TPO. <laughs> yeah, they, they've been worse than expected. And it, it's really just the Chiefs that have been like the actual good team that we thought they would be.
1: Yes. All right. Well, one of the questions I wanted to ask here. Look, we we know all the things that have happened for the Seahawks. If you rank the in terms of importance to the Seahawks, Beating expectations, like position groups or individual players outperforming expectations. How does that go for you?
3: Yeah, so I think there has to be one answer that is number one at the top. You guys can argue with me if you disagree, but it's like football is, and the NFL specifically is is driven by how good your quarterback play is. And none of us would have thought that Geno Smith would play this well, and and he has, and that's. Like the only way that you can dramatically outperform expectations as a team is to have really great quarterback play or, or quarterback play better than what you thought and like the Seahawks have something like a quarter of their cap this year is dead cap and if you're going to have a good football team while spending 75 um, percent of the resources that everybody else has, then you've got to have a quarterback that dramatically outperforms his contract and you've got to have a draft class that hits and as we'll talk about later that the draft class part also applies but Geno smith is making three and a half million dollars this year and if you look at like his pff grades it's like about an average russell wilson season over the healthy seasons that russell wilson is here so i think if you stacked up Geno smith passing grade i think it's like fifth out of russell wilson's nine seasons or something like that so it it's, it's like going back to russell wilson on a rookie deal except it's you know smith i mean he's legitimately playing great and it's 3.5 3.5 million dollars it's gonna be really interesting to see what happens after that should i keep going should i keep going with my list or do you guys want to Nobody's gonna disagree with you, but Gino. Okay.
2: You're like, feel free to disagree with me. I was like so ready for something that wasn't Gino. Th- yeah,
1: I thought it was gonna be offensive. line when you said I was that. <laughs> I mean, really ready
2: to disagree with you, but you said th- you said the obvious thing.
1: Collectively, they're paying their quarterbacks thirty-one million, including the twenty-six million-dollar dead yep. cap to Russell Wilson. And Gino Smith is the quarterback room has produced at a thirty-one million-dollar level, so it's all working out from that standpoint for the Seahawks. Would you
3: franchise Gino Smith? Do they have the cap space to do that? If the, if they're signing two first round picks, two second round picks, and the other players that they you, that they need. I guess you can always create cap space by restructuring yes. guys and stuff like that. So I, I mean also I guess, that
2: Russell Wilson <laughs> money coming off the cap is a pretty big deal, right? Right. It's almost it has to be pretty close to what you'd be paying, Gino.
3: That's right. But I, I thought the franchise tag was like insane because of the Watson extension and Aaron Rodgers and like all these Russell Wilson, like all these insane. I thought it was like 40 or 50 million. So if that's what it is, I think it'd be pretty hard to do. And the CX would be uh, better served by ex- extending him if he would agree to that. So like, if it's or walk and they can make a, find a way to make franchise work, then yeah, I, I think you have to do it because it's hard to just conjure up quarterbacks out of nowhere even though the, the CX have done it twice now. But yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't really see much of an alternative. They're, they're not going to get a high draft pick from themselves, obviously. And, and the Broncos are probably going to win enough games to be out of like the super high pick unless they package picks to move up. But I'm not sure if they would actually do that. So I'm seeing that
1: the franchise tag is projected at 31.5 million by over the cap, but then the exclusive franchise tag goes up yeah. to like 44.5. So okay. I think you definitely want to move.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You definitely want to move
1: the lower number.
3: And that, So the lower one is the transition tag where if somebody signs him, then they have to send you first round picks or something like that. I, I think that's how that works. Is that right?
1: Something like that. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's, and, and I, it's interesting. Now, would you rather have, uh, assume that nobody comes in with an offer of those draft picks. Would you rather have Gino at that contract for one year or try to sign him to a longer term deal at this point, knowing that, you know, he's not a young quarterback, although he doesn't have the mileage that some of these older quarterbacks do because he's been backing up so long. <laughs>
3: yeah, I think the question is, if it took the Ryan Tannehill contract to extend him, would if you are the Seahawks, would you be comfortable offering that? And if, if you were Gino, would you accept it? I, I think the latter is, the answer to the latter is probably yes. Although obviously I have no idea. I'm not Geno you know, Smith or his agent. And if I were the Seahawks, then I, I think I would consider it like you, you now have an offensive line, as we'll talk about soon, in place. You, you still have DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. So, it, if as long as the rest of the season goes well and he doesn't come back down to earth, which has happened somewhat to the offense, although not totally, then I don't see a, a great alternative to doing this.
1: Yeah, you know, in Tannah contract, Four years, $118 million, $62 million fully guaranteed signing, $91 million guaranteed for injury. So, you know, approximately uh, a little less than $30 million per year there. We talked
2: about this a little bit, but uh, I guess offline, and this is wild to say, but the Seahawks out don't have a ton of gaping needs at this point where they don't have young players. And knowing the draft pick capital that's going to be coming back to them next year, if they didn't bring back Geno Smith, their biggest issue would be finding a quarterback. So it's a little bit like knowing that you could go get all these other positions, right? There's still, obviously, there's always a need at pass rush. There's always a need at wide receiver. There's always a need in secondary. There's always an offensive line. But the CX have gotten to be, I mean, they're, they're good at wide receiver, but like they're above average or adequate at a lot of those positions. And if you know that you can use some of that draft capital to help go fill in all of those other positions, And also bring back Gino at the same time while staying relatively young as a team overall. I think it's kind of the perfect scenario. I mean, obviously, it'd be even better if Gino was a six round pick or something, you know, like if if Gino was locked up for four years on a rookie deal. Beyond that, I really can't conceive how this could look better for the Seahawks than to have the current talent that they have on the roster and to have the draft capital coming back to them next year.
1: Also, if you know that you can draft Hall of Fame quarterbacks on day three of the draft, that that's, a, that's an incredible <laughs> skill to have as well.
3: But only once every 10 years.
2: <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> uh, we'll give Shaquille Griffin some credit.
3: Not, not day three.
1: Day, he was day two, right? Yes. Uh, I, one question I did want to ask you, Ben. So Gino is number one by a mile in completion percentage over expected in the stats tables at rbsdm.com. Number seven in EPA per play. This is the same split we saw the last few years with Russell Wilson. Is there something about the Seahawks offense that is creating this high completion percentage over expected? Because it turns out it did not follow Russell Wilson to Denver.
3: So I think what most makes sense and Seth Walder was tweeting about this is like Tyler Lockett is just insane at catching footballs. And he's kind of the one, the one constant between. Well, I, I guess there's a lot of constants, but a possible explanation is that Tyler Lockett is so good that he is always going. Any anyone throwing to him a lot is going to have a high completion percentage over expectation. Where I guess where this doesn't totally reconcile is why that would affect CPOE more than EPA per play, because if if you're catching passes and especially deep passes like Tyler Lockett does, then obviously that helps your EPA per play too, and it's not like. Well, so (laughs) the pick six probably is hurting Geno's EPA per play, and there were some other turnovers, so maybe that's factoring some into which are things that would go away in larger sample sizes. But it's, yeah, so it has to be something with either the receivers or the scheme or something like that that is driving these. And it it is really interesting that this thing that we thought was a, a Russell Wilson thing turned out to be, uh, present with Geno Smith on the Seahawks, but not Russell Wilson once. He left. Was, we,
2: I mean, maybe we don't have these stats beforehand. But was it true of Russell Wilson prior to Tyler? I mean, Tyler Lockett's been around for a lot a long time, obviously, but there was a time prior to Tyler Lockett.
3: That's a good question. I don't think so, but I also don't have it handy.
2: Was Doug Baldwin just Tyler Lockett before Tyler Lockett <laughs> was Tyler Lockett?
3: Was Tyler Lockett? Doug, Doug Baldwin was. Doug Baldwin was also very good. One of the things that did drive Russell Wilson's CPOE and EPA per play apart was taking so many sacks, and that's not something that Geno Smith has done. So, like that—that that was the explanation that I thought was driving that for the most part. But now I'm—I'm I'm questioning whether that was the case.
1: Yeah, I mean, Russ's CPOE was always good. It just wasn't quite as incongruous. I guess it would now. Even 2012, I'm looking at 2012 through 2014. He was substantially better. It looks like he was third in CPOE and about like sixth or seventh in adjusted EP report play over that span. So yeah, I don't know. know. (laughs) All right, but we've we've focused in on the number one reason on that list. Let's continue going through the list of most important factors in the Seahawks overachieving.
3: Yeah. So I've struggled with what to put second. And the answer is going to be one of the position groups that came out of this most recent draft and it's going to be between the cornerbacks or the tackles and like it's a cop-out to say tied second but I don't don't, and I don't really feel strongly between these I'll say the tackles just because the offense has been more consistently good than the defense and yes that's probably largely driven by Geno Smith but it's it, it just it makes such a big difference for a team to have two reliable tackles in their first year of their rookie contract and actually being good already. Like it's something that the Seahawks just won't have to worry about for such a long time and has already helped them on the field. And like we were talking about before, it's not a hole on the roster that they're going to have to be thinking about for a long time. And it's so different than the past Seahawks teams where every single year we've been wondering, oh, who's the the right tackle going to be? Who's the right tackle going to be? Five years ago, we didn't know who the left tackle was going to be. And now that's just not something that is applicable anywhere. I, I think
1: offensive line and the tackle specifically is clearly the number two thing for me. I mean, we talked about on that preview that you were running a variety of different projections for offensive lines throughout the offseason, and all of them had the Seahawks at best at like 31st and probably like 30, maybe, maybe up to like 29 <laughs> best
2: at 31st.
1: <laughs> and then like now the same model that you're running in season based on a combination of PFF grades and ESPN, uh, pass block and pass rush. In pass block and run block win rate is the Seahawks are sixth in that.
3: That is wild. Yeah, and it's it, it's not like I was the <laughs> only one who thought over the offseason season that the Seahawks were going to have a bad offensive line. Like they were they're starting two tackles and they um, they were bringing back an interior that either played for them last year and wasn't very good in pass protection or <laughs> there was Austin Blythe who has talked about extensively <laughs> on this podcast and. <laughs> Blythe hasn't been amazing, but Damian Lewis has been better. And when you add that to the tackles, it's like it's just been such a night and day experience from offensive lines uh, that we've seen over the past.
1: Yeah, I still don't quite get how the the Seahawks process for why they didn't just sign Austin Blythe the year before, if they thought he was going to be so much better for Seth, for Shane Waldron's offense. But. uh yeah, they, they. I can't say that he's like dramatically underperformed the modest salary that they did sign him to. So I think that one's worked out just fine. There we go. I mean,
2: awesome. but, but or go ahead, go ahead, make your point.
1: Well, let's <laughs> let's talk about corners. I think. Well, I
2: want to talk about the tackles first. Okay. Because we all sat here on draft night, right? I remember I had COVID. It was great. Uh,
1: <laughs> you were like the SNL commercial.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we all sat here on draft night, and and took a victory lap because the Seahawks made a normal draft pick in drafting an offensive (laughs) lineman. And to see that actually come to fruition and having a benefit on the offense so quickly, I think it's kind of amazing just how, how rapid we've seen that response in something where I think we talked about it where we were like, look, Charles Cross isn't maybe the anchor for this year, but Charles Cross will matter two, three, four years down the road. And it hasn't just been Charles Cross. who has been good, obviously, but I'm sure there's, I think there's probably metrics that Abe Lucas has been even better than Charles Cross as a rookie. And to see those two things happen in their rookie season is, it's a pretty incredible turn of events that's happened.
3: Yeah. The, the measures from PFF I've seen that take into account, like the, um, the player you're supposed to block have, I think, Cross is like slightly below average among tackles which like for a rookie tackle in the first half of the season is like totally fine that's not something to complain about but I think the biggest like by far the biggest surprise is Lucas he's a third round pick and he's been an above average tackle in the first half of his first season which is pretty crazy usually you don't expect tackles to come in and be good in their first season especially not someone who's a third round pick so he's He's just dramatically outperformed expectations.
1: Yeah, I mean, we were talking about him battling Jake Curran in the first <laughs> season for that job.
2: That we were seems talking, kind of you, you, do you remember this? We were talking about Gino Smith battling Drew Locke for
0: a starting job. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, I do remember that. I can't remember. <laughs> I literally knew. Okay, the corners.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, the, Tariq Woolen is everything we hoped that he would be and more and faster, probably, I guess I would say (laughs) like, I'm actually more excited about these last couple of games where he hasn't had interceptions because he's just playing good. You know, he played Deandre Hopkins to a reasonable draw. I would say on Sunday, if not even got the win on that. And then Mike Jackson completely solid on the other side.
3: Yeah. And the Hopkins matchup was a good one because the Seahawks haven't played against a team with their first wide receiver since like the Falcons in September or something like that. So, um, it I was very interested interested to see whether like the improved defensive performance would actually hold against DeAndre Hopkins, who I think the Seahawks have struggled struggled with in the past. But yeah, he did nothing against TreQuan, and which, which is definitely an encouraging sign.
1: They struggled against Colt McCoy in the past. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it'll be another interesting test coming this Sunday against Mike Evans and uh, Chris Godwin. Uh, in that Tampa Bay game and it's been the,
2: the whole secondary also though, not, not just yeah. regular, the whole secondary and Ryan Neal deserves a lot of credit. Yeah. I fucking love Ryan Neal. Um, the, the moment that they, they flipped to playing more Ryan Neal, although Josh Jones was on the field quite a bit also uh, on Sunday, but given the injury to Jamal Adams halfway through the first game, the secondary looking as good as it's looked at this point in the season, checking in at halfway through the season, that they've had four or five pretty solid games in a row, is again, it is not something we could have anticipated without their easily highest paid player on the defense.
3: Yeah, they're they're playing two rookie cornerbacks. So again, like we talked about with the tackles, that's if, if these cornerbacks are really who they look like so far, that those are two valuable position players of positions that you're not going to have to think about for a long time.
2: I'll say maybe the
1: corners are, I think it's Michael Jackson also, way, st- still not a rookie. <laughs> He's 25. Kobe it's, Bryant. Uh, yeah. Kobe. Kobe, Bryant. Kobe I sorry, yeah, yeah. Nickel. <laughs>
2: uh, it's maybe more impressive. The corners just because Charles Cross is the ninth pick in the draft or whatever, like Charles Cross, there's a reasonable expectation that he should be starting and playing at yep. least. Okay. At this point, but to find those two corners and even Mike Jackson on top of that, to have them be playing. And at this high of a level, that people are, you know, having an 80% chance of making the playoffs with those two starting, that is, it is unprecedented territory. Even for the Seahawks, honestly, it's unprecedented territory, right? This wasn't happening in Richard Sherman's rookie season.
1: Right. It was really year two that he established himself in that way. All right, do you, do you have a number four in the list?
3: No, that was, that was as far as I got.
1: I mean, I think the choice at number four is probably got to be between Chen and Nwosu like being everything that you would yeah. have hoped he would be is an edge rusher and a versatile, you know, position in that player in that position. It was nice to see Carlos Dunlap get a sack the other night, but like <laughs> Nwoso is the kind of guy who can also make a play in coverage uh, in addition to... We
2: knew that one when they signed Uchenna too. That was one where it's like, oh, the Seahawks got one here.
1: <laughs> but not this good. It was like, okay, that's a solid pickup of a young guy with potential, but not like, you know, Mike Sean is predicting today that Seahawks he's going to make the pro Bowl. <laughs> And then I think the other option would be Shane Waldron. Like, we I, still had that question about how good he was going to be coming out of last season. We had the moment that we have to talk about every time we come on this podcast at halftime, of the <laughs> game yeah. where Fed and I met up in person. <laughs> but then the rest of the season, it was kind of like, we'll see.
2: I think you're forgetting you're ge- all of these things. Okay. P. Carroll fair. has yeah. to be on there. I'm sorry, but P. Carroll has coached, this is his best coaching job in since they won the DVOA championship, right? Ben, are you willing to accept that Pete Carroll is a good coach in game now? In game? <laughs> every aspect of the football game.
3: Every aspect of the football game? I've seen those fourth down charts.
1: Ben,
2: what about passing on downs. early downs, Ben? What
3: about fourth downs? I think the, the gripes that fans slash myself have had with Pete Carroll have been substantially mitigated this season, which is great. I agree that I'm still, still a little (laughs) bit scarred,
1: but uh, things (laughs) keep going pretty well. I it's, it's been fun to watch. I I did want to ask. I I mean, I don't think that running back for a variety of reasons is going to be on this list, but I did want to ask about Ken Walker the third because I think his stats are kind of fascinating if you look at like his DVO, he's pretty middling. He's thirty fifth out of thirty seven qualifying running backs in success rate. Yet you look at kind of yards above expected, as you often post, he looks quite good. Is this the just the situations that he's running in? You know the boxes that he's facing.
3: So I think this is this is not a knock on him, but I so far he looks like a pretty boomer bust runner where like he's always hunting for the big play which is not necessarily a bad thing if he actually finds them which he has been but this is going to create like a low success rate um, a high percentage of plays where he's gaining fewer yards than would be expected based on a model based on player tracking data or something like that and then every once in a while he's just going to hit a home run so as long as the home runs are coming it's not really something to complain about but I think that explains his statistical profile where He's going to have high yards over expected and low success rate, or low like exceeding what might be expected from him on any given play. Me I mean,
1: I think that. Saquon Barkley is really the model. He's 30th yep. in success rate, yep. so a lot of similarities there. Yep.
2: Let me ask you a question though: Is that if you're running the offense, the ZX have not relied on Ken <laughs> Walker that much, all things considered. Yep. They've passed the ball on early downs. They've used Ken Walker. They have, when they have handed the ball off to Ken Walker, this might sound insane. They have used him more like going to a pass than a run than they have in the past. This is not trying to get one, two yards and to get to third and makeable. They're trying to get long plays from Ken Walker. And if the reality is maybe Ken Walker isn't getting three yards when when he's getting one yard when he should have gotten three, two when he should have gotten four or whatever, I don't feel like Ken Walker is missing out on the eight yard carries necessarily it's more just these like short these small bits of yardage that in the grand scheme of things football as we know it are not that important to me like getting short third downs is it's just not effective football at this point right big plays is what matters in football and if ken walker is able to get big plays one out of every 10 carries or something like that even if it's not a 70 yard run isn't that kind of the best way to approach running if you have to do it
3: yeah, I'm as long as the big plays come every once in a while, then yeah, I'm I'm not going to be complaining. It's, I think we had this conversation at the end of last season, um, which this, uh, is, this <laughs> is one point that I wanted to bring up. Yeah, so uh, we bullied you into um, retracting your <laughs> Rashad Penny take about Rashad Penny mattering, and and Penny is another guy who he was he qualified it. <laughs> he didn't he didn't retract it. <laughs> yeah, qualified that Rashad Penny matters with Russell Wilson.
0: Well,
3: and Geno Smith, <laughs> but that, yeah, R- Rashad Penny's another guy who like hit a bunch of home runs last year. And what I said was the, the track record of those guys is not good. And then he continues to do it this year. And as long as Ken, Kenneth Walker is can keep doing the same thing, then I don't think anybody's going to complain if he loses a couple more yards than he's supposed to a few times a game.
2: It's pretty wild to see. Rashad Penny and your running back stats, and it's like everybody else is bunched up. You're like, if you're in this bunch, that's fine, right? If you're down here, I can't even remember who is the worst running back?
3: Case Edmonds. Uh Cam Akers. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah, Case before that. <laughs> if you're in the
2: Cam Akers territory, he was a second round draft pick, right? Was he a second or third round draft pick?
3: It's definitely day two. Yeah.
2: You definitely could have drafted Cam Akers instead of Ken Walker or Rashad Penny, <laughs> but up here in the far right corner, away from everybody is Rashad Penny is Rashad Penny the running back who
3: matters. Yeah, those two seasons in a row where he was the guy who dramatically outperformed expectations and it it didn't even look like a fluke either like there were so many plays where like the second level defenders just looked so confused about his combination of how big he is and how fast he is where he just like ruins people's angles and like the hard part is having a team that slash scheme that allows you to actually get to the second level because they're, in the NFL there are so many run plays where that doesn't happen so you, like, you need to have that happen first but once you do get to the second level I think that's where running backs actually can differentiate themselves and that, that's what we saw from Penny and are possibly seeing from Kenneth Walker
0: it's
2: it's pretty frustrating that we didn't get to see I mean just I know it hasn't necessarily <clears throat> like hurt the Seahawks on the field I do think their offensive DBO has been worse without Penny though
3: uh, yeah it, it's come back to earth
2: like if there, if there was a drop-off, he's definitely a part of it. Uh, and the, just knowing that the combination of Penny and Ken Walker could have been there. It's, ah, uh, Penny was on a one-year deal, right? Yep. If he's healthy next year, I think the Seahawks will keep bringing him back as long as he's healthy.
1: The uh, CJ process plan of a series of one-year deals.
2: I mean, <laughs> CJ process, I guess, was kind of the same also. We'll always have that, that Patriots game.
1: No, he, he did not have the degree of effectiveness after the injury, sadly. Uh, I guess as we look ahead, there's been a lot of, I feel like there's been a lot of talk in the Seattle media about like this team proving it's or, for real or not a fluke. And I feel like that to me is too deterministic, but to what degree do you expect the Seahawks to be able to sustain what they've done so far and, and how much regression are you sort of expecting over the final eight games of this
3: season? Yeah, this is a hard question because the team has been so different in just like the first month versus the second month in terms of their offense and their defense. And the Football Outsiders DVOA update had like a bunch of team splits from uh, weeks one through four versus five through eight. And the Seahawks are one of these teams with crazy splits where they had like, incredible offense to start and very, very bad defense. And now they, their offense has been like kind of average over the past month and their defense has been amazing. So if we put that all together, then I think it's probably reasonable to expect that to land somewhere in between. So their offense should be pretty good and their defense should be average. And if that holds with their record and their remaining schedule, they, they, sh- they should make the playoffs and maybe even get a home game, which like if, if you told any Seahawks fan before the season, I, I think that we would take that at that point. <laughs>
1: with that question and you just look at the way the NFC sets up because of the fact that so many of the best teams in the NFC thus far are in the <laughs> NFC East like it, it's realistic there's a realistic chance of being the second seed and having a chance at two home playoff games which would be something they had not done since since they since 2014 right
2: two home uh, games yes
1: yeah
3: yeah so the, the the big competition is the the Vikings who also yep. have a Very, very, very easy schedule aside from the next two weeks against the Bills, although they might not have Josh Allen and then the Cowboys. So if you're a Seahawks fan and you think you have a chance for the second seed, then then those are the two games you want to be paying close attention to. Absolutely.
1: All right, let's turn our attention quickly to the rest of the league and maybe the rest of the NFC in particular. Because I think, I mean, it's been kind of a fascinating season where it seems like there's this changing of the guard At quarterbacks, like obviously, Mahomes and Josh Allen had already have elevated to that level, but you still had Aaron Rodgers won the last two MVPs. Tom Brady and Matthew Stafford won the last two Super Bowls. You look at those three quarterbacks plus plus a guy named Russell Wilson. Uh, Brady is 16th in your QB composite, the uh, CPOE plus uh, uh, EPA composite. Rodgers is 22nd, one spot behind Matt Ryan, who somehow got bench for Sam Ellinger. (laughs) <laughs> Stafford is 25th and Wilson is 26. Is this the end of an era of the quarterbacks that ran the league for a long period
3: of time? Yeah, it it sure looks like it. I'm I'm not sure how much there is to say here. I I think Wilson is younger. I, Wilson and Stafford are both younger than the other guys, so maybe they can bounce back. Um, I I think Aaron Rodgers' down season in 2015 was when he was about Russell Wilson's age, so. I don't think we're going to see Prime Russell Wilson again, but I don't think he's going to look as bad as he has um, this year. Uh, and maybe they'll they'll even get a new coach next year and, and try things again. But yeah, for for Aaron Rodgers, I th- I think the he, he's, he's probably not going to win any more MVPs. Packers does not look likely that they're going to make the playoffs. And then Tom Brady's weird because I don't think he's actually like playing poorly. They just like, they went through part of the season without any receivers because they all got hurt, and then I'm sure we'll talk about the Bucks later, but they're – like, on paper, their offense should be good now. They have – like, their pass protection is not terrible. They still have uh, Chris Godwin and Mike Evans. Tom Brady is playing okay, and they, they just can't score points. So, I'm kind of at a loss of, of how to explain them.
1: Oh, uh, we'll come up with some answers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, related to this, you look at the playoff odds in the football outside of simulations, the Rams reach it in the 13% of simulations, the Packers 11%, the Broncos 12%, the Rams and Packers. I mean, I think those are two teams that all of us, you would, you would certainly pencil in for playoff spots coming into the season at two between them. And now very likely, you know, three quarters of the time, it's going to be neither of those, which is creating some interesting opportunities <sighs> for the likes of the Giants to to make it in there.
2: What an incredible year it's been. Just straight up, what an incredible year it has been. From the Seahawks being unexpectedly good all the way down to the fall of Aaron Rodgers and, and Tom Brady. I care a little bit less about Tom Brady. He hasn't been, I mean, we talked about this. We'll talk about this when we talk about the Seahawks playing the, the Bucks. He's not even necessarily a foil for the Seahawks because they just haven't played him that many times. Obviously, one notable time got canceled, so they weren't <laughs> able to play him. But
1: they played the game, just there was no outcome. <laughs>
2: but the the Rams, I mean, when we talked preseason about we talked about this a couple weeks ago on the Pelton cast, about the NFC West and quarterbacks, and we were talking about which quarterback situation would you rather have. It was interesting, like the 49ers was a team that came up and it was really all around them basically handing Trey Lance the quarterback starting quarterback job because of the capital that they'd given up to draft Trey Lance. And I think the Niners felt like they just had to do it at that point. Trey Lance is hurt. The Niners are still a contender. I think their quarterback situation all of a sudden looks not better than the Seahawks. It looks a lot better than it did beforehand. But there's so many other teams around the league. I mean, if you look at the Rams having traded the capital plus the contract for Matthew Stafford, it is not a good situation for the Rams right now. And there's not a lot of draft capital waiting. And I just don't really conceive a way that Matthew Stafford has never been that good of a quarterback in his entire life, even as he was winning the fucking Super Bowl. So I don't understand how the idea that Matthew Stafford is all of a sudden going to get better as a quarterback. He's not going to play with a better receiver than Cooper cup ever again in his entire life. It is, it is not a good situation for the LA Rams at this point. And I fucking love it. Save for the Packers. Like, you're talking about best case. They didn't get a receiver at the deadline. Like, who knows? Maybe the Packers sneak into the playoffs this year. Possibly, right? It could happen. They still have a Jordan Love issue. They still drafted Jordan Love in the first round. At some point, they have to play him if they're going to play him. I would not be shocked if this was Aaron Rodgers last year in Green Bay. He's how old? 38?
3: That sounds right.
2: I mean, he's 38 years old, late 30s at the very least. And the performance is going down, even if they draft a rookie receiver. Like, what is the best that you expect from this point forward from Aaron Rodgers and from the Packers in general? And I, I think also this idea that they're – and look, I'm, I'm guilty of this also, that there are coaches who are more important than the personnel. And I think this is something – that became a very important idea in the NFL in the last five years, especially as Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan became successful coaches. And I really think that idea has been kind of debunked in this last year in particular. Like there is no coach who is more important than personnel. There's no coach who's necessarily worth that much. Sean McVay right now is better than, I I can't even look around the league and say that he's better than any coach in the league, Jeff Saturday, included. Uh, <laughs> But but I think that has been an, an important distinction is talent is more important than anything else by such a massive margin. And seeing the LA Rams without Andrew Whitworth and how different they look without OBJ and how different they look without Vaughn Miller, they're a different team completely. They still have Matthew Stafford. They still have Cooper Cup, but it really takes a lot to be a very good NFL team. Same for Aaron Rodgers with those quarterbacks aging. It has been my absolute favorite
3: season. <laughs> yeah, I think with the with the Rams, it it shows how hard it is to have a functional offense if your entire offensive line got hurt, and that's kind of what happened to the Rams in twenty nineteen too. Which, like at the time, I think Jared Goff got a lot of a lot of blame for, and maybe even in twenty twenty as well. But like, it doesn't really matter how good of a designer of plays you are if your offensive line can't has protect. And there's like last year we saw the Rams struggling, but because they had great offensive line and Cooper cup and OBJ McVeigh, and perhaps Stafford was able to get them out of the hole and eventually they won the super bowl. But yeah, if if you don't have the guys up front, it's just so hard to do anything.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's why there's probably hope for the Rams next season when that offensive line gets healthier and probably
2: unretiring.
1: So probably will be something they look to address with their.
2: Oh, they could probably go to the draft and with their first round draft picks, pick up an offensive well, line. Maybe they can, mean, maybe, what are we talking about?
1: Maybe they can trade the multiple, multiple future first round picks for a left tackle instead of tra- targeting an edge rusher with that. I. But this season, I think it's it's going to be difficult for them to dig out of that hole, although yeah. uh, we, you know. Hopefully they don't do that right in time to face the Seahawks twice in the last month of the season.
0: That
2: is kind of what happens. They always Andrew With always comes back. He'll unretire right before they play the Seahawks.
1: <laughs> I mean, they thought probably thought that about the Seahawks last year when Russell Wilson came back. You know, started playing like Russell Wilson right before we played the Rams at the end of the year.
2: And then we lost the game because of a phantom pass or not phantom, a non-called pass interference. You think we forgot about that? Well, I, I forgot about that you know what i'm talking about right ben dj dallas yeah
3: i, I remember that
2: pass interfered with we all saw it look the rams, the rams made it to the super bowl by default right it was an asterisk super bowl it's okay look they have a super bowl it's fine it's okay to be an average team for they even had a good year right i think they had one good season uh way back right when they lost the super bowl
1: 2018 guess.
2: but, yes. but you know they've been an average team for a long time and the wheels are finally falling off
0: oh
1: boy well who
2: do they have this week oh they have the Cardinals god anytime yeah. a team plays the Cardinals it's just like it's pathetic anyway <laughs> Sean McVay in the broadcast booth the next time the Rams make the playoffs <laughs>
1: We can't wait to look back on this one here uh, what,
2: what I'm not concerned first so I, I've been uh, harping a lot on wide receivers are underrated in the NFL this year Ben and looking at a, a lot of the big wide receiver transactions that have happened this offseason aside from Devonte Adams who it's not like Devonte Adams has been bad just the Raiders have been bad in general but do you feel like there's some reality to that. Maybe that wide receivers are even becoming more important, but obviously like teams valued them this offseason. They traded a lot of picks for them. And you look at the types of teams that did value those players like the dolphins, like the Eagles, right? Going out and spending capital now being some of the best teams in the NFL. Do you think we're going to enter into an era where wide receivers are being valued? Maybe not as high as quarterbacks, but in a similar fashion, where it is, we will clearly see it, view it as it is quarterback, it is wide receiver, everything else is less important, even pass rush.
3: Yeah, I think it's definitely moving that way. And when companies like PFF have tried to value positions, I think wide receiver has always come out as the second most valuable position. And that has usually gotten a lot of pushback from people talking about like edge rushers and left tackles and stuff like that. But yeah, this season we've seen um, like Tyree Kill really moves the needle, AJ Brown really moves the needle um, and unless you're Patrick Mahomes it's really hard to recover from losing a top receiver. We've, we've seen the Titans offense does not look that great after losing AJ Brown the, the Packers really missed Devontae Adams and these, these teams that have reliable top end receiving talent um, in, including the Seahawks um, can <laughs> weather change a lot easier than uh, teams that don't, I think.
2: I still think that's a big part of the Russell Wilson thing that we talked about beforehand, which uh, I mean, obviously at this point, nobody's regretting the Russell Wilson trade, right? Like, <laughs> well, the Broncos.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Nobody in Seattle is regretting the Russell Wilson
2: trade, uh, but it was it was one of those points that, whereas, like, I Russell Wilson has never played with wide receiver talent at the level that the Broncos have. He's always had very very high level wide receivers uh and you talk about tyler Lockett. i mean i love jermaine Hold on, he he was on here. Seahawks yeah. number
1: two wide receiver
3: yeah. for a long time <laughs> who, who was he throwing to in the super bowl against the patriots
2: whoa oh,
1: <laughs> jermaine Kearns had an amazing play right before all the power in seattle cut out and we have no idea what
3: happened afterwards
2: uh, there was still good receiver talent. I mean, Doug Baldwin is still a very good receiver,
3: he was very good.
2: And then since then, the the locket DK combo is one of the best in the league, obviously. But like going from that to the Cortland Sutton, Jerry Judy, right? Like KJ Hamler is that his name?
1: Well, not having Tim Patrick has been
0: a lot, yeah,
2: but like that's what we're talking about, right? Like the, not having Tim Patrick. There's a lot of receivers to throw the ball to. And it's just, it's not as good. And having, having worse talent is very difficult for a quarterback. Um, but Kevin and I were fighting on this. And it's just like, I, I personally feel like in the first rounds, that should be pretty much go-to every year. Because it's a position that, I mean, pass rush, obviously, offensive line. But it's a position that you can play multiple players at the same time. I understand that there's the target share to go around. But if you can have a pretty constant stream of very good wide receivers and that value on the other side, if you develop somebody, I think teams should be drafting wide receivers in the first, second, or third round pretty much every single season.
3: Yeah, and that's, I've been frustrated in the past with this Seahawks not doing this just because, like, we've seen how sensitive their offense is to, like, when Tyler Lockett gets dinged up or something and their offense is just falling off a cliff. And we've seen that in a couple of seasons. and. Like, yes, Tyler Lockett and DK Mecca are great and they impact the offense a lot, but behind those guys, they haven't had a lot of people. And D. Eskridge was their attempt to mitigate this, but it hasn't worked out. So it'll be interesting to see whether they uh, take another shot with one of their early picks that they have next year.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I you you said that is not a need, Tristan, earlier referencing DK and Tyler. And I don't think it's like you probably don't want to use the Denver pick for that, but yeah, one of the top three picks on that for sure. Should we talk about the Buccaneers and the Seahawks playing them in Germany? The first ever NFL regular season game in Germany, who played at Alliance Arena in Munich, home of FC Bayern. So the Buccaneers. Despite their four and five record and a three game losing streak against weak competition at Pittsburgh at Carolina home for Baltimore that threatened to reach four before their late comeback last Sunday at home against the lowly Rams capped by a K dot and game winning touchdown. Cade.
0: Tampa, Tampa was, Bay
2: Ricks. It was a beautiful. To see. <laughs> oh, it was great.
1: It was great. Tampa Bay rakes <laughs> 10 in DVOA, still eighth in Dave. The, uh, the prior adjusted version of that one spot behind the Seahawks, in part because their defense remained stout, seventh overall. And you know, has been sort of alluded to earlier, they're 10th in passing DVOA. The problem is they are 31st in the NFL in rushing DVOA, averaging a league low 3.0 yards per rush attempt. And still has been has pointed out running 44% of the time in neutral situations on first and second down more than the Seahawks who are doing. So 41% of the time, like how much value are the Buccaneers just throwing away every time they run the ball early on early downs.
3: Yeah. I, I'm not obviously a Buccaneers fan, but even for me as a neutral observer, just watching them like they cannot run block their running backs can't really create out of, anything out of it in this on first down they just run Leonard Fournette up the middle over and over and over again and it's just painful to watch I hope well I hope they do it again on Sunday and if they don't it's it's going to be so frustrating because <laughs> the, like this is what they've done all season so if they're going to adjust I hope they wait at least one more week to do it um, but yeah they're they're costing themselves value doing this and they're and another thing they're costing themselves is like they don't really go for fourth downs either. So I'm hoping that is another trend that continues on Sunday.
1: Oh, we're going to, we're going to get there. We've got that. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> nice. it, it reminds me a lot of the Eddie Lacey season or the Seahawks. Although, oh no. Although Leather <laughs> does have a number of touchdowns that year. You'll recall JD McKissick, the only rushing touchdown by a running back on the Seahawks. Yeah, Rashad White may be a tiny bit better than Fournette. Uh, But Fournette has actually been pretty productive as a receiver, so let's talk about that part of it. Uh, Starting with Brady at age 45, completion percentage down a little bit, but the big change in his production is the yards per play. Down from 11.0 last season to 9 yards per completion, I should say. 11.0 last season to 9.8 this year, which would be the lowest of his career. Uh, Still has the second lowest sack rate, just one interception so far. But uh, he it, you're not seeing the big plays that were more of a staple in the Bruce Arians offense and, and Chris Godwin, perhaps a factor in that coming back from the injuries that he's had most notably the ACL tear that he came back from really quickly. His targets haven't been nearly as productive, just a 65% catch rate in 6.2 yards per target after catching 77% plus of his targets the previous two seasons. He was at 8.7 yards per target last year and at 10 in 2020. So even with Mike Evans about equally effective to how he's been and KDOT and Ruggie as a reliable target at tight end, that's still been a big hit, I think, to their passing offense, especially because they haven't gotten anything from Julio Jones, really.
3: And they also lost Antonio Brown, who was a source of big plays last year until and, until he wasn't. <laughs> now he's now he's not there. <laughs>
1: Big blow up on the sidelines, <laughs> certainly. I mean, Brady is interesting. Tristan mentioned this earlier. It's just the fifth time he's ever played against the Seahawks because of the fact that he was in opposite, the opposite conference nearly his entire career. The, the Patriots Fifth were, time? Fifth Wait, time.
2: Can I go through and try to guess these?
1: I mean, <laughs> sure. Okay.
2: <laughs> we have the uh, uh, You Mad Bro game. That's correct. Yep. That was 2012. We have the Super Bowl 49.
1: Yes, 2015.
2: <laughs> the revenge game, aka the CJ size game,
1: right?
3: Yep. Was that the Cam Chancellor and Gronk in the end zone at the end? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Those are the Do three I remember. Right
1: after the point? election in 2016, you uh-huh. why why the Seahawks keep playing Tom Brady immediately after under elections? It's <laughs> unclear to me. Uh, so you are missing the needle,
2: the needle is broken. Um. I've seen. <laughs> uh. What have we played it with the
1: Bucks? No, We've so we got to Tampa Bay in, in 2020 game. when the Patriots came to Seattle. That was the Cam Newton game, the Cam Newton stop yeah. at the one wow, yard line yeah. game that we emergency potted about. Uh, at, and this is the first time playing the Seahawks in the NFC. Wow, so some the, old
2: school Patriots games.
1: So then there was uh, a game the Seahawks played in New England in 2004 as part of a long <laughs> Patriots winning streak not not super memorable from a seahawks perspective i wouldn't say no, it's gone gone from my mind okay. <laughs> yes. i i believe we watched that at the famous cousin Candies. but uh that's the that's really the only thing i remember about that game and what so. was the other one and then i think they would have played in oh, 2000 oh this is
2: their fifth time
1: no they, they have played him five times the other one was 2008 uh the the patriots won that 24-21 in seattle but again i i don't remember anything about that game particularly
2: Two thousand eight. Oh no! They, the no, I'm sorry. Jackson. He did not play
1: them. No, he was. That was the Matt Castle year. So yeah. So it is four times. This will be the fifth.
2: Wow, it's kind of wild that he's played this <laughs> many years, and the Seahawks have only played Tom Brady that many times. And somehow I still hate him. <laughs>
1: uh, uh, it's not
2: visceral. It is not visceral on the same way that it is like Matthew Stafford, Aaron Rodgers, though. I mean, you played against free weirdly.
1: If he had been in the division, it would have been a totally different thing. I mostly just time. feel
2: bad for Cliff Kingsbury now.
1: <laughs> I don't feel too bad for Cliff Kingsbury.
2: Put him out of his misery. Or maybe the people of Arizona. Uh,
1: the Bucks number six in passing DVOA on defense, number 13 in rush defense DVOA. Remarkably, that's the best rush defense by DVOA the Seahawks have faced since San Francisco in week two. I assume it's also the best passing defense they've played in that span, although, you know, less notable because there's only five teams ahead of them. Uh, They have been playing without safety. Antoine Winfield Jr. the last couple of weeks due to a concussion suffered in week seven. So we'll see if he's able to return for this one. The Bucs have a really interesting pass rush. They don't get a lot of edge pressure. Their edge leader in sacks is Shaquille Barrett with three. Uh, Our old friend Joe Tryon Chienka has two and a half. But Vita Vea, also our old friend. A pass rush all by himself, as we saw on Sunday, leads the team with six and a half sacks already two and a half more than his previous NFL career high. And they have also gotten three apiece from Winfield and linebacker Devin White on blitzes. So add that up. And without much edge pressure, they're fourth in the NFL in sack rate. Uh, Let's talk about the, let's reiterate the fourth down decisions. The only team that has lost more value in terms of not going for fourth downs, where the fourth down bot Ben created, has recommended going for it, has been the Denver Broncos and Nathaniel Hackett. So that's been a a tough, tough look for (laughs) Todd Bowles in his first year taking over for Bruce Arians.
2: That's what Todd Bowles was brought in to do, though. Like, if we're being honest, Todd Bowles was not brought in because he was going to have progressive football. Right, like they knew what they were getting with Todd Bowles. I think Brazilians was also this way, right? Despite yeah, he was not good on fourth downs. Yep, it's it's so funny that these people. I fucking hate football logic. Right, <laughs> this, the quote from Jim Mersa about people uh, <laughs> being being scared and then turning to analytics and. <laughs> Frank Reich and the Colts, I assume that some of that was coming from Jim Ursay, right? Because there was a game two weeks ago that they more or less lost because of fourth down decisions to kick field goals, taking taking the points, right? I feel like some of that had to be coming down from the top of just being like kick field goals more often. But this idea that you could get more conservative on offense, like Jim Ursay saw that loss that the Titans had to the Chiefs and was like, that's what we want to do. That's how we want to lose games. <laughs> And there's good Reich- ways to lose and there's bad ways to lose.
3: Reich has been like one of the better coaches on fourth downs too. So Ursay must have just been fuming this whole time.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like... I feel like Jim Say probably is tendency to get emo- emotionally swayed. There's been a tendency to emotionally <laughs> swing. So I feel like it's just like some recent game that stuck in his craw, as opposed I do, to like I four years of decision. decisions. Be
2: brash, outspoken person, right, Bruce Arians? You're just like, I like take. I throw no, deep, risk it, this no is biscuit, no biscuit. do. This is what we do. We go deep on offense and then we punt the ball. You're just like, how is this who you are? How has it become known with? Like, being bad to be aggressive at football, right? Like, old school football, like Bruce Arians, is just like, yeah, we punt the ball, right? I, I do not understand it from a, like, logistic standpoint. Like, Jim Ursay, right? He's just like, I say what I'm thinking. I do what I want. I punt the ball. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, I think Mina has had a good point on this lately that like we need to rebrand fourth down decisions and make them less about it's the smart thing to do and more about
2: needs to be a turnover because the second that they mark upon a turnover, everybody will be going for it.
1: Well, I don't think we're going to have that change happening anytime soon, but we just need to make it into the turnover. The aggressive football guy thing to do is being going for it on fourth downs.
3: If if we call going for it, imposing your will, then.
0: We'll
3: get some track. <laughs> Impose their will on fourth downs. <laughs> All right, Ben.
1: W- what are you expecting from this game, and percentage chances of victory?
3: Yeah. So this is hard because I think both teams—they're like—it's still a bit hard to know what to make of. We talked about the Seahawks where they've been like kind of two different teams as the season has progressed, and for the Buccaneers. Like their, their defense is good. Their offense has the players where you think they should be good, and they just aren't good. So, if you listen to Vegas, the Bucks are still a good team. Uh, yeah,
1: we, I, we didn't <laughs> talk about that, that. So, you know, the Seahawks have been consistently undervalued by Vegas all season. By the way, <laughs> we, uh, so I, as we've mentioned on the pod, I bet on all of our over under locks as well as the Seahawks. Uh, the the over underlines before week one in Vegas, the first one of those to cash somehow your Seattle Seahawks. But even as recently as Sunday in Arizona, where they were, you know, underdogs <laughs> in that game, and yet even after that, still they coming two and a half point favorites. I think was the opening, or two and a half point underdogs to the Bucks. I think was the opening line. Then it went down for a while. Yep, uh, yep. I saw that it was even <clears> at one point,
3: and then now it's gone back to Bucks by two and a half. Really. Yeah, it the money's like, on the bucks, huh? On, on Sunday it, it started going back to the Seahawks and I was like, okay, this this makes sense in reaction to the games that we just saw. Yeah. It, it was it was perhaps crazy that the Bucks were even favored in the first place. And now it's like everybody forgot <laughs> everything that happened. And oh that
2: they, they made one <laughs> one drive and one pass to Kate Otten, and all of a sudden every <laughs> single one of the Bucks issues are fixed.
3: So yeah, so if if you look at the like the way the the betting market values teams; they have the Bucks as the seventh best team and the Seahawks as the twentieth best team right now, which I think are both kind of crazy. Tristan's making a face, and th- that's that's how we get the Bucks being favored by two and a half points on a on a neutral site against the Seahawks.
2: I see. I think of betting markets as probably viewing things more along the lines of the way that DVOA views things than fans do. They, I I'm, yeah. I'm gonna quote when I say fans. right? Because fans view the record as the most important thing, right? DVOA is, they don't give a shit. DVOA doesn't give a shit about the record, right? It's just judging how you played. And I view Vegas as the same way, right? Like, I mean, Vegas
1: should be more like Dave because Vegas is going to be taking into account the priors, and that's part of why this is the way it is. I think it's more off on the Seahawks, who are 28th or 7th and Dave, than it is on the Buccaneers, who are 8th.
2: No, that's the shocking piece. It's not necessarily how they're viewing the Bucs. It is how they're viewing the Seahawks, in Vegas.
3: Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, yeah, so so Vegas has Bucks favored by two and a half, and it's like a 58% chance of winning, which I think, like, it's just high. Unless the Bucks flip a switch and go back to the team that we have seen the past couple of years, and like, there's not a 0% chance that, that that happens, but I don't think it's that likely to happen on any given week. Um I like I don't see how it's at worst like a 5050 game for the Seahawks. And I, I could talk myself into the Seahawks being more likely to win than that. You said a 50 percent so, chance. Uh that's the biggest one. For, oh, okay. for mine, I'll I'll say like I'll I'll say fifty. What
1: were we what do you say? Fifty fifty, just like the needle right now. Wow! <laughs> 50-50. Is the needle broken or is it back to 50? The needle is back.
2: And it's 50. 50- Where did the needle start? <laughs> I don't know, but it's
1: I think it's actually a little bit uh different from 50-50, but it's very close to that, suffice it to say.
2: Uh, I think it started as lean slightly down.
1: Uh. Anyways, I mean now the one variable here. The Seahawks are flying a lot farther to get to Germany than the Buccaneers are. We don't. I don't know how much of a factor that will be. It's also the very first game in franchise history the Seahawks will play at 6.30 a.m. Pacific time, because the one time yeah. that they played in London previously, it was a rare 10 a.m. Pacific start uh with the rest of the morning slate of games as opposed to before them. So that's going to be an interesting factor here. One of the reasons for the Seahawks' success in night games historically is that West Coast teams tend to overperform in those relative to East Coast teams because of the body clock factor. But do we know have, when
3: the Seahawks are flying to Germany?
1: <laughs> I believe they said either tonight or tomorrow. So it's it's very okay. Early. That's good. Yeah. That's good. It's not like the Denver situation. Yeah, I yeah, <laughs> that's what yeah, I was thinking early. about. <laughs> it's so going to be a
2: fascinating one
1: because of that. I'm pushing like Bucks slightly favored. I'm like forty seven percent.
2: The Seahawks, wow, you're doing your number first? What is this? Because Ben's here. Uh, I still think the Seahawks, again, was it the Cardinals that I mentioned? Or no, it was the Giants that I mentioned this. Pete Carroll is uniquely built to play against a team like this, right? There's no team, you're just not going to be able to run the ball on Pete Carroll in that way, right? If, you want, if you're not good at running and you want to pound the rock, meet Pete Carroll. Right, like that is exactly what he wants to do: is stop that offense. And I don't see the Bucks have; they don't have another mode. Right? It's not like there's two different Bucs teams. I mean, I suppose there is because they can do it in the fourth quarter. But like, they do not break in case of emergency the good offense for a very long time. And if this game is a four-point game in the last drive then I'll be nervous. But if the Seahawks are up by 10 with three, four minutes left, all of a sudden there's no other mode for the Bucks to get to. And I think that's more what we're looking at right now. The Seahawks are probably a better team than the Bucks are. They are definitely a better coach team than the Bucs are. And I I just can't conceive. They're not going to put up a ton of points on them because of how they want to approach this game. And as I mentioned last week against the Cardinals, the biggest issue here, it's not Mike Evans. It's not Tom Brady. It's not personnel at all. It is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and how they want to approach this game. And that is what is going to hurt them the most. It is. They're not going to get the ball to DeAndre Hopkins enough. They're not going to get the ball in this game to Mike Evans enough. Right. And there just aren't that many other players that can hurt them out there. We're going to see so much running.
1: Can I give you a Don't give point. me Kate
2: Otten. Do not give me Kate Otten.
1: It is not, I mean K D a part of this, but like, K is not it,
2: I've I've had him in fantasy. I've watched K Dotten. I know K D He is not going to do anything in this game. He think, might, he might, he might score a touchdown, whatever. But like K is not going to be a factor in this game. The Seahawks, Seahawks could be Zach Ertz style.
1: The Seahawks do often win these games, but think about the quarterbacks that give the Seahawks trouble. It's yeah. Matt Schaub. <laughs> I already mentioned Colt McCoy. It's Josh McCown in the playoff game against the Eagles uh Ryan Fitzpatrick at times these old quarterbacks who are happy to just sit there and take like 5 I and 6 yards a time I, against I, the I Seahawks think... guess what that's 45 year old Tom Brady to a time
2: i don't know <laughs> if that is 45 year old Tom Brady first off second off the Seahawks pass rush we saw it against i mean they contain you're, you're not going to affect
1: Tom Brady with your pass rush i second lowest separate effect... in the league I mean, you might have not going him. to
2: have open receivers, though. That's the thing. Like, I don't, I do not see it with Tom Brady.
1: All right. Did you give us a chance of victory?
2: Not yet. <laughs> I'm still trying to think of who the quarterback is in the current NFL, right? Because all of those quarterbacks have retired. If Matty Ice were to be playing for the Colts, that would scare me. Uh, <laughs> but, I I do think that this team, again, they're uniquely built to play against the Buccaneers and to play against Tom Brady's Buccaneers, especially this team where, you know, Chris Godwin is still recovering from injury. They can't run the ball. It's Evans. It's Kate Otten. It's not really that scary of a team, all things considered. And the Seahawks are going to be be able to outscore the Buccaneers. And I think they're going to win this game by 10 plus points. Wow. I think it's like a 68% chance of victory. Wow. This is a team, are we, Did we not just watch them struggle to beat the Rams at home? would it it surprise you
3: if the Seahawks struggled to beat the Rams? Or if they're so fascinated.
2: I honestly, like, I don't give a fuck about any other game. The only game that I care about watching is the Seahawks
1: versus the Rams.
2: What is the first one?
1: If they're both in December, right? Or maybe one is in January.
2: The Rams are going to be such an interesting barometer of where we're at because we've struggled so many years with the Rams. Even when the Seahawks have beaten the Rams, it's been tough.
1: Right? Yeah. there was December fourth is the first of those.
3: And then the last week of the season.
2: I mean, I, I don't even see that game as necessarily mattering for the Rams, right?
1: That's the hope. Could be.
2: We'll see. It'll probably matter for the Seahawks, but like I I would be surprised if Matthew Stafford's starting the last game. They, they also wouldn't have any incentive
1: team. to tank. <laughs>
2: <sighs> the, just not getting Matthew Stafford heard of their incentive to tank. Anyway, it'll we'll be <laughs> Aaron Donald's last game, Sean McVay's last game. Uh, I can't wait till they play them. But Tampa Bay Buccaneers, that team does not scare me.
1: Why? Well, I still think it's going to be a fun game to watch, even if you're talking about uh, other games in the distant future.
2: Oh, it's going to be great. 6.30 a.m. I can't wait.
1: Right. Ben, as we this, talked is, about- this is perfectly we- in your, your sweet spot of game viewing.
3: Oh, oh yeah. T- 9.30 is perfect time. <laughs> I wish it were a little bit earlier, but I'll, I'll take it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks as so much, so much Ben for joining us mid season to go over the Seahawks uh, and revisit where we were wrong from our preseason pod. And yeah, uh, We'll be back, hopefully not, until well into January after a, a playoff run to revisit the season in its entirety.
2: Not
3: into February. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> okay. January. Are you kidding me?
3: Tristan, would you be happy if the Seahawks lost to the Rams twice and won the Super Bowl? Would that be a successful season or <laughs> an unsuccessful season?
2: <laughs> I, I would take it. I would take it. <laughs> okay. As the, I mean, that means that they... Like the Rams are probably not making the playoffs or they beat them in the playoffs. (laughs) I'm okay with that.
3: Thanks for having me. (laughs) All
1: right. Thanks again to Ben. Time to get back into our usual rundown. And it starts with a segment we have not had in a long period of time. Our search for Seattle's best barbecue has continued this past weekend because we finally got Northwest Texas barbecue. Uh, Something I've been wanting to have for several months here since I've. I first learned about it and I assumed that it was going to be easy because they operate largely out of West Seattle. But then lo and behold, uh, they've been doing a lot of catering lately and haven't had a lot of pickups in West Seattle. So I saw one last Sunday and it was like, Seahawks game. Uh, the first time I came over to your house to watch a Seahawks game since the Packers game last season. And, fan. No. And uh, that may be the reason it's been that long. So I picked some up at noon. Came over here, we ate it, watched the Seahawks. It was a great Sunday. It we, was a great Sunday. We didn't really talk about that Cardinals game much at all in that interview, but you uh, just kind of just did the thing. The best thing about the Cardinals game was
2: when we had a conversation, and you were like, if that hadn't happened, maybe the Seahawks would have never made the Russell Wilson treat. <laughs> That's how we view the So Wilson trade, is we're nervous about, like, things that happened previously in time that led the CX to the point of making this trade, and now we're so happy about it. That's my takeaway from the Cardinals game. There
0: you go. <laughs>
1: All right, so Northwest Texas barbecue, not, alas, a barbecue tradition unique to Northwest Texas. What? Just in case that was unclear, but a reference to Texas barbecue in the Northwest from Houston native and veteran Chris Burris. I was going to say El Paso? That's in Northwest Texas, right? Uh, I think El Paso would be West Texas. Okay, I guess it's on the border. The, but the, I, lo- but I looked up. up Northwest. Yeah, Northwest Texas is the part that goes up. I did look this up because I was like, is
0: there a Northwest Texas?
1: Uh, but There's anyway. a Northwest everywhere. <laughs> Houston native uh. and veteran Chris Burris begin smoking after attending the Texas A&M brisket camp, same as Jack Timmons of Jack's Barbecue. And uh, operates on an irregular schedule out of a smoker in West Seattle near the junction, as well as popping up around the area. And the menu that they have changes from, uh, you know, location to location, day to day. So uh, on this particular time, we got each got brisket sandwiches. We also got the uh, half rack of ribs to split between us and then some brisket mac and cheese. Uh, I, I definitely want to try like the full on brisket because to me the brisket sandwich is not quite the same is full on brisket and probably not quite as enjoyable even though the barbecue sauce that they that they make is quite delicious in its own right El
2: Paso is definitely northwest Texas it's like the farthest possible point of Texas look there's El Paso but that's west you I mean, it's literally the northest do you see right there where it is in Texas
1: look you're you're looking, saying it's you're up there. Relative, and,
2: that's south, buddy. You're that's, saying. You're it's
1: looking at Mexico.
2: Way up there. Yeah. Okay, so you're saying up by. Yeah. All right. All that's, right.
1: That's the farthest west? Texas. I will. Okay, I will accept that. Yeah. It's it's just you a complicated be, state. You can't be northwest if you're on the border.
2: But it is in that part of Texas, it is the farthest north and the farthest west point.
1: If you're going by Pareto. I'm sorry that the knows. lines of Texas are drawn really poorly. I think we're getting bogged down on this point. Can we talk about brisket sandwiches instead?
2: I just, I strongly feel that El Paso's, well, I strongly feel that the NW, NWTX barbecue should have been named for Northwest Texas. Not, <laughs> not... Again, no unique
1: barbecue tradition that I could find. <laughs> I mean, if there was something that combined barbecue with... You know, Mexican cuisine. I'm that just saying it, awesome. is, it is a very Although confusing they, name. They do do, do a mole. We did not order that this time, but they mm. do do a mole. Okay. I want to try that for sure.
2: Everybody's talking about the Midland mole or the Lubbock mole. I guess Midland's not that north either. Do you, do you want to talk about
1: the food? I thought it was good. The brisket sandwich was really good. Um, the ribs were excellent. I thought the ribs were the standout, the real winner of this one, especially because they had without being particularly saucy, uh, just a very strong flavor to that. The,
2: the the brisket the brisket on the sandwich I thought was really good, and I thought that was the best flavor-wise, the food. But something about like the smoking that was done uh, or the rub that was added, it was just a little bit off to me, even on the ribs. And it might have just been that the, the brisket in the mac and cheese was not good. You, Do you agree
1: on that? I feel like you're disputing this. That had been a little dried out, so I don't know if that was... It just...
2: I thought it was good, though. I mean, we're so far off from our search for Seattle's best barbecue. It's been
1: a very long time. The last time that I ate barbecue was in August. And you, it's been longer because you still have refused to go to Little Red's.
2: I don't refuse to go to Little Red's, but to me, if the barbecue was from El Paso (laughs) or if it was in the tradition of Northwest Texas, I feel like it would would have pushed that extra little notch.
1: Well, maybe once we no, try No, it was good. It was good. Once we try the brisket mole, we'll we'll find find the what you're looking for. I I don't know that anyone what? else is looking for that as part of the search.
2: I just want good barbecue. What do you mean what I'm looking for? You feel like this is a contender for Seattle's best barbecue?
1: I think the ribs were as good as any we've had. Okay. Without question. What is the
2: leader right now in Seattle's best barbecue?
1: I think it's probably Woodshop, but we definitely need to to compare Woodshop and Jack's. so Woodshop was pretty good. It's interesting. I, he, uh, Chris did an interview with Q13 a few weeks ago as part of their food truck series and uh, uh, m- mentioned, like he was talking about other barbecue spots in the area that, that he like respects and said both of those. And then the other place he mentioned was Jeff's in Marysville. We got to get out to Marysville. Which we've been advised to to. Got go to, to, go to. But Marysville. Marysville is so deep, unless we do a, a day of it with uh, John Brockman's Farms. John Brockman's Farms. This time to vote, IPA.
2: Do you ever think about, like, when we're on nights like these, when there's elections happening, what you would do as president? <laughs> or what it would be like if I know, I understand we're not electing president, but for me, I'm always just like, what would it be like if I was president? And I'm like, I feel like I'd be a pretty dope president. <laughs>
1: I don't I think it would be a miserable experience from reading Michael Lewis's profile on Barack Obama. Like I I have no illusions of oh, if I was president everything would be great. I'm like, yeah, same problems would same structural problems would exist. I mean, this is partially my theory that like and you could apply this to sports as well, but I think it's doubly true in politics, that we spend too much time worrying about individuals or giving too much credit or blame to individuals and not enough to the large-scale structures. Wide receivers? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is also your your take about Sean McVay. Like, Sean McVay got all the credit. But this is it's also the element of, like, imagine a coaching staff where instead of having 10 assistant coaches or 15 assistant coaches, you had a thousand assistant coaches <laughs> that's what being president is like
2: <laughs> i feel like the assistant coaches would stop being helpful around
1: <laughs> 960 or so <laughs> yeah that's the cutoff. i
2: just really feel like anything you say or think or whatever is such a big deal when you're president and like i'll say all sorts of crazy shit all the time right
1: i'll take Tristan,
2: and and i love the idea that you could say that or whatever and i would still have the same interest that i had and just be president <laughs> But I just love the idea of there being, like, random things that you do, but have it be attributed to the president. And it would just be like, the (laughs) president—I wrote some of these down. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Of what I would be doing as president. The president is going to be lying in bed all morning because he, quote, (laughs) needs to grind on Stardew Valley. (laughs) The president declares search for nation's best fried chicken. (laughs)
0: I think that would you, be know, good. you know, you I,
2: know. Do you ever think about that? When you're president, you're just like any food I wanted in the country, right? Oh yeah. Anything I wanted, I could have it right now. I don't know about right now. Maybe not right now, but like it's not like you couldn't go into. You could go to a restaurant. and They'd be like, they will ser- like seat you instantly at any restaurant you wanted to go to. And that's why the president <laughs> is going to be spending the next weekend alone in Charleston. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just be like, I'd be like, you know what? I feel like I'm just gonna go to Charleston alone, no other plans. <laughs> you and the secret schedule service. nothing.
1: <laughs> right? There's, there's no, there's no, no speech. There's no parade. No, really just time. the it's president's just, going to right? eat some
2: barbecue. That's the thing about being president. Is it all? All the bad parts are contingent on caring. <laughs> Trying to get reelected Yeah is that not true So I always imagine it Like you just wake up And you're just the president All of a sudden But you're still yourself It would be awesome
1: uh, This is getting strikingly close To the plot of the movie Dave
2: <laughs> Is that what happens in Dave
1: <laughs> Not exactly <laughs> Lastly
2: <laughs> The president does not work During seven <laughs> hours Of commercial free football Every Sunday Wow Quiet It's the witching hour <laughs> The president's gotta Have him some hands in
1: I feel like Scott Hansen would really. And George be... Bush
2: kind of did that.
1: <laughs> right? Three reds out here, though. I just
2: feel like it'd be so much fun to be like the Seahawks are on and just like going nuts in the Oval Office or what,
1: wherever they. I guess you don't know, watch yeah, you know, games the in the
2: Oval Office. You just like where they have these massive viewing rooms or somewhere in the White House, I assume. And I mean, just like being the, in there.
1: the place that's traditionally a bowling alley, right? You can convert <laughs> that out into an incredible man cave, right? <laughs> man. So, like, the, fir- the first down that Gino picks up
2: to Tyler Lockett, right? Or even on the third down touchdown that he has to Tyler. Just, like, high-fiving everybody in that room as hard as possible. Yelling Gino as loud as possible. Or, like, after they score a touchdown being like, the game is over. <laughs> I'm just saying every stupid thing that you do would be hilarious if you were the president. I suppose so. Anyway, I can't believe you don't... Th- I think about this all the time. No, very little time thought thinking about this. Wow. You work, you work for ESPN. Your ESPN's Kevin Pelton. So you basically are the president. Your whole life is the president. I don't know if I would say
1: describe that it that way at all. Anyways, at Jack's Barbecue.
2: Oh, there's Jack's Barbecue News?
1: No, I'm sorry. Northwest Texas Barbecue. Uh, the president,
2: the president would declare that they cannot be named Northwest Texas <laughs> barbecue if they are not barbecue that is from the region of Northwest Texas.
1: They're offering turkey brisket by the, I think it's a minimum of five pounds brisket, chili mole, and pork belly mac and cheese for pickup on Thanksgiving, for your for your uh, Thanksgiving meal in either West Seattle or North Bend. If the listener is in North Bend, I don't, I don't know if we have the North Bend listener.
2: We apparently have the Salt Lake City listener, by the way. Yeah. I told you about this on Sunday, right? You did, yes. Shouts to, I don't I have no idea who it was in Salt Lake City, uh, who went to the Claw Illuminati Hotties concert there and talked to Aramis.
1: Yeah, in Enumclaw. We yeah.
2: appreciate it. Whoever, whoever you are.
1: All right, one other.
2: The, pre- the president has decreed.
1: <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> the,
0: this, is you know, wor- they this. this is worse than they... the time
1: you called me chef
0: throughout the podcast. <laughs>
1: Although that would also be hilarious if you were president and the president was like, yes, chef.
2: (laughs) The the president has binge watched the bear and is now calling everybody in his cabinet chef, right? That would be awesome.
1: The Politico report (laughs) sources indicate the president is now referring to everyone in his circle, chef.
2: Uh, the, if every music take you have, too, it'd be like the, the they have the Barack Obama like summer music list that he still puts out or whatever, and it'd just be like the entire track list of Save the Baby.
0: <laughs>
1: I feel like that violates the Hatch Act. The, the president wants to know where 10th and J1 is. Uh, uh, the other f- food note, Lil Woody's Fast Food Month, entering week two, it's the Hello. Sourdough Woody this week along with, most importantly, curly fries there available we go. as a you really,
2: You really fuck with curly fries. The president the president doesn't <laughs> love curly fries.
1: <laughs> I don't know if I'm the vice president in this scenario or what. But. You think I'm choosing you as my vice president?
2: <laughs> Everybody would be trying to kill me. No, <laughs> Or not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Depends how much they like the analytics. Uh, can you give us a review of the Little Woody's
1: Baconator? Whatever they call it. I mean, obviously, I've had this, you know, multiple years now. Uh, I, and by the way, we—I don't think we've mentioned on the pod our vintage? discussion online. I don't think <laughs> we've
2: 2022. I don't think we've mentioned
1: either. this Twitter discussion on the podcast. We settled on the Little Arby's beef and cheddar, as is the play going forward? I, for one, do
2: not agree. Settling on that, I don't think we need just one.
1: Sure, I think that's our strongest, strongest pitch.
2: Lil' little, little Arby's beef and cheddar. I'm not saying I obviously love this idea. But I'm just saying, there was no vote taken. Nobody was elected president like I was. <laughs> that would be another great thing to do as president. There's just so much stupid shit that you think about <laughs> that when you're president, it would be hilarious to think about. <laughs> Can you imagine the president commenting on Lil Woody's fast food month? <laughs> Just, like, responding on Instagram, scrolling through Instagram, be like, y'all should have a a little beef and cheddar.
1: (laughs) I feel like this is disturbingly close to our reality for four years. Uh, But
2: Trump didn't do anything fun. That's the problem with Trump. There's a lot of problems with Trump. But literally nothing Trump did during his entire presidency was fun, like, Barack Obama was having some fun as president occasionally, right? I feel like even Joe, Joe occasionally has fun. But it's just like, if you were president, you didn't give a fuck. Like, the whole Trump thing is about being mean-spirited and, like, undercutting things and looking for people wronging you. It's never about commenting on Lil Woody's Instagram posts, right? I, it is not That's what it. I'm saying, is I would just show that being president can be a fun job. <laughs> I, I don't want it to be a fun Nobody, job. Why? Nobody is stopping you from watching seven hours of commercial free football every Sunday.
1: I mean, maybe we'd get more candidates if it were, better candidates if it was a fun job, but.
0: <sighs>
1: All right, let's get into our rundown, starting with a little bit of Mariners news. Jerry DePoto told, told reporters Tuesday at the GM meetings that the Mariners will not extend a qualifying offer to outfielder Mitch Hanniger. The qualifying offer would have guaranteed Haniger a one-year deal at the average of the top 125 salaries last season, or <clears throat> 19.65 million. And given the M's draft compensation in the event Haniger signed elsewhere, the exact pick would have depended on the size of the contract. Uh, Depoto did make it clear the Mariners would love to have Haniger back, just at something that wouldn't be that kind of like giant one-year contract, and would maybe be a bit more manageable for their long-term financial planning.
2: Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I don't did you look at the uh Fangraphs top 50 free agents? I did not look at that. Of this offseason, so. Uh you'll never guess who's number 1. Um is it Aaron Shaw? <laughs> Yeah. Uh Luca was asking me about that. And he was I was telling about Trey Turner. He was like is he number 1? And I was like No. <laughs>
1: the, guy, the guy who hit the NL <laughs> record is number
2: 1. Maybe the best hitter of all time is
1: number 1. Yes. Well.
2: Uh,
1: best hitter of the post-barry bonds era. Sure.
2: Uh, but just looking at the top 50 free agents, I think we all agree that the Mariners are going to be aggressive in free agency. Yeah. as, as much as fans can agree about something that another team is doing, but this is the 2020, Robbie Ray, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> this is the wrong season. <laughs> I mean, the photo that basically. I pulled up, I just Googled, I looked, looked for Mitch Hanniger and it was, uh, the 2022 top 50
1: free agents. The Mariners signed the number seven free agent last year. <laughs> that worked out great. <laughs> everyone, everyone, no one has any regrets about it. I mean, it, Jordan Alvarez, it didn't turn out to be his only, his, arguably not his most famous three run homer of the playoffs. Okay. They have Hanniger as number 47.
2: Yeah. On the Fangrass list.
1: I mean, it, it's kind
2: of an interesting one. I think uh, Hanegar is just, that's what we are, as we're Uh <laughs> He's a really tough player to evaluate because we know that he's good when he
1: plays. But he has missed so much time due to an injury.
2: And that's kind of, and he's not young. So it's like the idea of, I mean, you know, the numbers that they're looking at are somewhere between 8 and 12 million a year, which I think is fair as long as it's not that long of a deal. But yeah. I would freaking love for them to bring Haniger back.
1: Sure. <clears throat> mm. Yeah, two years in that range would be great.
2: And and we were talking about the biggest needs. So I was talking with Luca, and he was like, outfield. And I was like, absolutely not. Especially if Haniger is coming
1: back. It is still a very deep outfield. There's a lot of players there. How many players you can count on in the outfield is a different question. I mean, Julio, Hagerty, and then after that, a lot of question marks.
2: The, as somebody who is fully in belief that Winker is going to have a bounce back season next year, I think Jesse Winker is part of that. But then you also even looking deeper, if Hanager was back, and then knowing that Kellinick and Kyle Lewis still possibly being the mix, like there are a lot of bodies, but somebody is going to break out from that
1: group. But, but also somebody's not going to break out from that group. Not Julio. <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I'm and Mitch to Julio. Again, ha- Mitch Julio is, is the given. But you only need three. No, you need at least four. They're well, going to plan on having four and have one of those players DH on a regular basis. We'll see what that looks like. They're planning on having four and having one of those players DH on a regular basis.
2: But when you look at... Okay, so Judge is number one. Trey Turner is number two. In the write-up, they're basically like the most likely spot for Trey Turner is returning to the Dodgers. Obviously, it makes sense. He's making a lot of money. I watched a CAA hype video this week, as narrated by Santa Claus John Hamm about Trey Turner. I was so hyped on <laughs> Trey Turner.
1: It, it was kind of it was a thing where it's like the worst player who you'd get really hyped about if you saw a hype video about. I them? just nobody. I don't. I really don't. You could show
2: me a hype video on anybody. It's J.P. Crawford. Um, <laughs> oh, but the. I mean, I watched a Phillies hype video going into the season. I'm like, man, remember when we were so down or going into the World Series? I was like, we were so down there for a second. I had no (laughs) idea what was going on, but I really felt those emotions or whatever. Uh, It was actually kind of interesting, though, to like peer back the curtain of these things that are being sent to GMs. About a player. Like it's kind of fun. Everybody knows that Trey Turner is going to make like $30 million a year. But they're still making. CA is still making a hype video for Trey Turner.
1: I think there's a little performative element
2: to that. I, I mean I agree. But okay. But shortstop at number two. Carlos Correa is number three. Shortstop. One of the youngest players
1: on this list. Did you only sign a one year deal with the Twins last year? Yep. Interesting. Xander
2: Bogorets, Number six. Shortstop scrolling through a bunch of aged starting pitchers so you're saying there's a lot of shortstops Dansby Swanson number eight shortstop I think there was one more
1: uh near the top maybe not Depoto did mention signing a middle infielder as one of the priorities
2: it's not an infielder though the Mariners need to sign one of those players and that's the reality is J.P. Crawford Statistically, honestly, J.P. Crawford looked quite good by the end of the season, but we know that that's not actually what's going on. J.P. Crawford, with Adam Frazier gone, could easily slide to second base, or you sign one of these shortstops, they're not a great defender, and move them to second base. Whatever you need to do, but they need to be getting more in the hitting department from the infield, and that is the place where the Mariners need to go out and sign. They have to sign one of them.
1: The day you say you have to do something, you're screwed. If the the Mariners want to compete, God, you're so... No, they read the market. (laughs) You don't say you have to do anything. You read the market. Okay. You don't have to do anything.
2: You don't have to go to the playoffs for the next 21 years either. But like...
1: I don't don't think it was a lack of signing enough hyped free agents that kept the Mariners out of the free agents. It actually was. It
2: was. If you sign one or two hype free agents every three, four years or whatever,
1: name all the hype free agents. Eventually you'll get enough Jeff Cirillos and Richie Sexons to put together a competitive team. I believe Cirillo (laughs) was actually a trade. Sean Figgins, <laughs> you're talking about a long time ago.
2: Sean Figgins, how much did they really? Pay Again, to?
1: Robbie Ray, they signed last offseason. But if your agency you're doing it, has not been kind to the Seattle Mariners,
2: they have not done it when they've had the roster. The only time that they've really done it, where they went all in, was maybe the Eric Bedard trade. The Mariners need to with they, this that, roster. They
1: definitely did not have the roster for.
2: Them. Look, I'm not going to say that these things do worked anything. for the last 20 years, but you know what? Also tried and true works. They need is to be signing pragmatic. players.
1: They need to what? Be pragmatic.
2: Okay. The Mariners can be pragmatic, but the money is fake and you know it. Like, right now is the time to spend money. I'm not talking about trading prospects. They've already traded their prospects for Luis Castillo. Trading prospects is the, is the same thing to me as in the NFL, right? If you're – I'm trying to think of who – I don't think they had to re-up Brian Burns. If you're somebody who's like, I am willing to trade draft assets for the privilege of paying
1: a player, that is a bad way to approach something signing a free agent, but the reason you do it is because when you get trade for a player, they're not on a 10-year contract that you have to give to a free agent. Sign Trade Turner to a 10-year no contract. There's no clear that Dane a 10-year contract Johnson, makes sense Carlos for.
2: Correa. Do not need to be on 10-year contracts. That's not the type of free... We're not talking about Bryce Harper. Trade Turner is. And if the Mariners sign Trade Turner it would be a 10-year contract and they should still do it. They should sign Trade Turner until he's fucking 40 and we would be thrilled when the, when they did that. I watched the hype video. I'm going to
1: invoke the PeltonCast golden rule here. You don't know how you're going to feel about having Trey Turner at age 38 under contract until it happens. I,
2: you know how I'm going to feel about it? I'm going to be looking at the World Series trophies that are hanging in the rafters. <laughs> this is wish casting. <laughs> it's not wish casting. If the Mariners sign Trey Turner, they're a World Series contender.
1: I mean, the Mariners are probably a World Series contender either way. <laughs> They, uh, were, they, they were very competitive a World with Series the cont- team that won the World Series. World
2: Se- they got swept. They're a World Series contender in the perspective of if you view the baseball playoffs as if you get in, there's a chance. Right? I mean, that is how
1: the baseball playoffs work. I don't know if you saw the Philly season.
2: I can tell you there's a better chance if you're really fucking good, too. Did you see the Astros' season? Because the best team in the league, the best team in the American League won the World Series. Yeah, and they
1: did it with a bunch of players that
2: they developed. And Justin Verlander. Like, the reality is not you're not always going to be able to develop what the Astros had. It is a once-in-a-lifetime generation of players that the Astros had. If the goal is to sit back and to develop the kind of players that the Astros have developed over the last decade,
1: the Mariners will never in a
2: million years The goal is to
1: build that. a sustainable roster, to yeah. carry through Julio Rodriguez's prime, which is not for another seven years.
2: You think Julio Rodriguez's prime is in seven years? His, his prime, peak
1: is in seven his years. Prime his prime starts prime is in,
2: right now. No. it's not. The reality of baseball is it's not like there's one chunk of money. There's no salary cap. They can sign Trey Turner, and then they can sign somebody else next year. The money is endless, and it's fake
1: in baseball. I mean, it's first off, there are a lot more restrictions on baseball spending than there used to be. But— also, you and I both know that that's not how it exists, how it works in the real world. And we can talk about now, the Mariners should spend endless money it all we want. They're not going to do it.
2: It exists in the real world if you're successful. If you're, if you're bad at it.
1: if The if, Mariners have been successful and it has not existed in the real world.
2: When have they been?
1: For a five-year span in the 90s? I mean, I I, I know you a, don't like to acknowledge the one hundred and sixteen win season in the two years after it, where they won a hundred plus games, and the year before it, where they made the playoffs. But that was a stretch where they had extended suspe- su- sustained success, and it wasn't in the business model to win the World Series.
2: It's a different business model now, though. Like these TV I, I contracts so.
1: are worth a lot more than they were in two thousand one. The the money comes in for the TV deal. I mean, I guess in the Mariners' case, actually, they do have more more incentive than most to win. Now that the Kraken are good, too. They own, <laughs> own the network, so it's not like the money is locked
2: in. The Mariners are making so much fucking money right now. Also, that 2001 team was still built around a lot of free agents.
1: But they were lower-cost free agents. That's the point. They're not, not going out and signing the most expensive player on the market for the sense- sake of doing it. You know who was the most expensive free agent on the market that year? A-Rod? Yeah, the guy that yeah. left the Mariners before they won 116
2: games. Maybe they would have won a World Series 2 if they had him. They probably would not have been the playoffs taking... if they had him. Oh my God, get the fuck out of here. You think that roster plus A-Rod, who do they sign instead of him? Ichiro and
1: Brett Boone? They were going to sign Ichiro anyway. I mean, they were probably going to sign Ichiro anyway. They had a separate Ichiro budget. But, but they certainly would not have signed Brett Poon, And Brett Poon was probably more valuable than Arod that season. More I don't know, valuable not. by what measure? I don't know. Maybe not. But we do know that Brett Poon was the most valuable member of the Mariners <laughs> that season. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> we are aware.
2: Anyway, <clears throat> when you look at the market, the position that there is a, they glut of is also the position that the Mariners need the most.
1: Are you disagreeing with that? I don't think that shortstop is as big of a need as you do.
2: What do you think J.P. Crawford hit in the second half I'm of the year?
1: I'm of what J.P. Crawford hit.
2: Jesus Christ.
1: But also, I've seen what his value is what it is, in part because of his defense at shortstop. So yeah, if you're signing but, one of those guys to play second, that might be a different situation.
2: They're also, you know, a lot of these players are getting older, and the positions are mostly interchangeable. Let's pull up some J.P. Crawford splits here. Move on to the next
1: thing. I'll, I'll be back. I don't want to hear splits. I want to hear, only want to hear overall stats. Uh, I've got some terrible news for you. Oh, no. no. The Kraken are good. No! It was an incredible 3-0 road trip as they first rallied from a two-goal deficit in the third period Tuesday at Calgary, scoring three goals unanswered to win 5-4 on Thursday. They completed their first shutout of the season at Minnesota with Martin Jones earning his first shutout between the pipes for the Kraken in a 4-0 win that featured a pair of goals from Alex Wenberg. On Saturday, it was Brandon Tenna who delivered the game winner with 3.39 left to play as the Kraken beat the struggling Pittsburgh Penguins 3-2. That perfect road trip put the Kraken above true 500, that is, more wins than losses and overtime losses, for the first time ever entering Tuesday night's game back home against Nashville, and they celebrated with a dominant 5-1 to win over the Preds, scoring four times in the first period for their franchise record 5th consecutive when the kraken are now eight four and two and in second place in the pacific division we're under the current nhl format the top three teams in each division make the playoffs along with the top the two wild cards from elsewhere in the conference kraken now have a couple of days off before continuing the homestand by hosting minnesota on friday and winnipeg on sunday oh, i hate those jets <clears throat>
2: Which part of J.P. Crawford's second half did you like the most?
1: Again, I only care about was it, overall stats. Was it the 600 OPS? <laughs> or was it the 332 on-base percentage? Or the... well, well, like, if we're doing splits, what was Cal Raleigh's first half? Why, why is the second half more meaningful going forward than the first half? Wait, wait, hold on. I'm going to leave the splits page and just go to
2: the J.P. Crawford overview. <laughs> Which part about the J.P. Crawford season did you like the most? Was it the 675 OPS?
1: Go to his war.
2: He was a good defender this year. He somehow weirdly has a 3.2 offensive war and a
1: .5 defensive war. I truly truly do not understand how those numbers it's like my favorite thing about you talking about baseball is like how statistics matter unless they disagree with your can point you tell in which me? case they no longer matter literally uh, can you tell me I, how I assume, this season translated to a good offensive war i mean i assume the standard for shortstops is pretty low in this dead ball era that we've got going for ourselves well the mariners
2: have a chance to sign one of four free agents who are actually good at hitting uh little Sanders lose <laughs> with Saturday. He wasn't even that good of a defender last year. The defensive JP Crawford we
1: all like JP Crawford, but he's bad. Again more says otherwise. With Saturday's MLS Cup win by LAFC via penalties over the Philadelphia Union, capping the 2022 season. The annual MLS expansion draft is coming up on Friday as St. Louis S- City SC prepares for its first season. Sounders have until Thursday to decide on their 12-player protected list. The expansion left list draft no longer a particularly big deal. Uh, the teams can make no more than five picks. And once upon a time, you were picking from like 14 other teams. Now it's 28 so the odds of the sounders losing someone not necessarily very high although uh may have some decisions to make uh with basically like the 11 starters plus leo chu is someone they probably want to protect
2: can you look at war by position for a specific
1: year i mean you could probably do that on Stathead splits but i don't know if we can do that live during the pod Utah men's soccer the Huskies got a pair of wins at home as mentioned earlier they beat UCLA 3-2 on Thursday night to clinch the Pac-12 championship after going into the break even at 1-1 and then they turned a scoreless affair through the first 69 minutes against San Diego State on Sunday into a route with three goals in an eight minute span. Utah will wrap up Pac-12 play Thursday against arch rival Oregon State looking to finish unbeaten for the first time in program history. You'll recall the Beavers earned a draw against the Huskies in Corvallis, one of three on the season for UW. Uh, Then after that, we'll have the uh, NCAA tournament selection next Monday. So we'll know where the Huskies (laughs) are seated, presumably number one, (laughs) before we go into the, uh, before we record next week's pod.
2: Is there, do you know anything about how the uh, college men's soccer NCAA tournament works?
1: We learned a little bit about it last year. The finals are always in Cary, North Carolina, if (laughs) I recall correctly. I think you have to play. It's better than being in fucking Oklahoma City or Norman. I think you have to play three matches, and the Huskies would host all of those before you get there. You have to play three matches, and then you have to travel as far (laughs) from the
2: state of Washington as you humanly can.
1: Pretty close. (laughs) Pretty. That's where. That's the home of soccer, is Cary, North Carolina. Are Utah Women's Basketball opened the season with an 87-74 win over Utah is there, Tech.
2: Is there a Charlotte FC team in the MLS? Is this, this is this is how much the MLS has expanded is that you don't really know where the teams are anymore. Is there a team in the state of North Carolina an MLS team? It would have to be Charlotte. I th- think so. We've We've acknowledged that MLS is expanding at a faster rate than anything known to man.
1: I, I was hoping you were going to laugh at the annual MLS expansion draft. Just like it's scheduled every I year. was
2: busy looking at fucking shortstop war over here. Just trying to... The idea that J.B. Crawford had a good year.
1: Yes. Okay. Charlotte FC began play this year. Oh, great. Great.
2: We'll love to see it. It was all of those uh, college men's soccer tournaments that were hosted in the state.
1: All right, again, it's basketball. like Carrie C-A-R-Y? Yes. Okay. UW women's basketball opened the season with an 87-74 win over Utah Tech behind balanced scoring. With four players in double figures led by 18 points from Trinity Oliver. In her UW debut, Lehigh grad transfer Emma Grothaus had a double-double of 14 points, 12 boards off the bench. Huskies will host UC Davis on Friday. The Aggies dominated NAIA foe Bethel College 84-36 in their opener on Monday. Utah men's basketball completed the doubleheader at Ed on Monday with a 69-52 win Monday against Weber State. It's a little shaky early for the Huskies who trailed 22-16 with six minutes left in the first half before finishing the half on a 15-1 run holding Weber State without a field goal over the last nine minutes before the break. They pulled away late when three started going down. Keon Brooks Jr. was active in his Husky debut, playing 38 minutes and scoring 20 points on 6 of 15 shooting, as well as 7 of 13 from the foul line. Also had seven boards. Fellow transfer Frank Kepnong was a powerful paint presence before fouling out, grabbing eight rebounds and blocking three shots. It was a tight rotation for Mike Hopkins, who played just seven players in the second half. After starting guard Noah Williams was ruled out for the night with a leg injury, the lone freshman in that group, as we discussed last week, was Keon Minifield, who had eight points in his first college game, knocking down a pair of late threes, one of them a step back.
0: All
2: right. How is Noah Williams' health?
1: Didn't didn't see any update from uh, Percy Allen and his his recap in the Seattle Times. So, uh, unclear the severity. He was on the bench with an ice pack on his knee uh, at one point during the second half.
2: You would probably assume that just given the opponent, they probably weren't going to push it.
1: Right, and may not need to push it for a little bit here. Uh, On Friday, the Huskies will face North Florida, who started their season at Gonzaga, lost 104-63, trailing 53-23 at the break, and uh, will stay out west for the the rest of this week. Next Monday, the Huskies will get a visit from the men's team at Utah Tech, which lost 84-71 at Nevada on Monday.
2: Anything that we learned from these first few games?
1: I I mean... I think it was pretty much as expected for the Huskies. They struggled with fouls, fouls a lot in the first half, kind of got that under control in the second half, and uh, you know just dominated physically, as you often do. I mean, the important thing was just avoid embarrassing non-conference home losses, since you'll recall that's what they had last year in their opener against... It was one of the Illinois schools. I can't remember which directional Illinois it was that they lost to, but the, the team finished... Ranked about 300 in the country in Ken So, certainly a better debut for the Huskies than that was a year ago. I mean, honestly, you look at the schedule, we won't, uh, we probably won't learn much. Cal Baptist is a little more competitive. That'll be the toughest team they face. But we probably won't learn much about them until they get to the, uh, the Wooden Legacy tournament uh, during Thanksgiving week, where they'll take on Fresno State to open that one. <clears throat> it's still pretty early. Yep. Uh, it's Northern Illinois last year who <clears throat> won at Heckhead in the opener. Oh God. Yeah.
2: Uh when do we get to, to do my favorite segment? What's that? The conference realignment segment. I mean, is there is there an update? Just the the chatter around Gonzaga.
1: Uh Gonzaga meeting with the big big twelve. Yes. So
2: What we have so far is we have information that Gonzaga met with the Big 12. Was there a mention that they had previously met or discussed with the Pac-10, Pac-12? There was a mention they had had conversations. Conversations. What does this mean in the grand scheme of things? I don't know. (laughs) I wanted you to say nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think there is any realistic chance that Gonzaga joins one of these larger conferences?
1: I mean, it'd be quite a pivot for one of those conferences to have a non-football member. So, I but, uh, you know, the Big 12 took the meeting. So, I guess there's some chance of it. They at least didn't see that conversation as a complete waste of time. Great. Good stuff. Good stuff.
0: Now, <laughs> to, I,
1: to, I don't, know, I don't there, know what to tell you. We're in unprecedented times. There's not Anything been, is possible. <laughs> there's not, like, there's never been anything like that that has happened before. The arms race that's
2: happening in college sports, not just college football, obviously... Is is definitely different than it's ever been. Yeah, I think USC and UCLA they really like. There was there was something about Texas and Oklahoma going to the SEC.
1: It was a slow burn. Well, you knew the Big Twelve was in trouble always, but the Pac Twelve wasn't as clearly in trouble. And and those
2: two kind of set off a, a bit of something for everybody else. But there was a nugget in that report that was, what did it say? Something along the lines of. The Big 12 has done their research with TV partners or whatever, and they've found that Gonzaga adds no value or something along
1: those lines. I don't think that was the term. I mean, I, if that was the term, I don't think you would you would even take the meeting. It, it was something similar to that, though.
2: And I think, I think it is a harsh reality and one that I truly love, uh, similar to the way that I love these seasons that Matthew Stafford and Aaron Rodgers have had, where... I think Gonzaga thinks they are a bigger fish than they are, and the impact that a program like that has in being a small town, small TV market, et cetera, and what that might mean on the larger scale of college conferences and how they're negotiating things, I think is a, a pretty interesting piece.
1: I don't, I don't think this means what you think it means.
2: What? I mean— I, winning, for, winning, for lack of a better word, is not that important.
1: No basketball, for lack of a better word. Basketball, also, but also important. Like again, Gonzaga isn't trying to be Texas or Oklahoma. Gonzaga isn't trying to be UW. It's a tiny private school that does not play football. <laughs> okay, it doesn't need to but be any of those things.
2: Gonzaga would love if they mattered in college basketball. G- Gonzaga I think would Gonzaga love loves to, be to have no-
1: leverage in its conversations with the West Coast Conference.
2: Gonzaga would love to be Notre Dame style courted,
1: right? I mean, sure, everyone wants to be wanted, but,
2: but it just doesn't. It does not. It does not. I suppose that it's called basketball. The quote was:
1: "It's a positive, but it's not a financial game changer. Not so a you, financial game changer." You, in classic Tristan fashion, <laughs> have remembered this quote. I mean, look, all of us do this confirmation bias. Uh, prior is confirmed. But have remembered this quote is so much more favorable to your predefined position of being <laughs> anti-Gonzaga than it actually was. And This is in the story by my ESPN colleague, Pete Thamel, about this. Uh,
2: yeah, no, I'm sure that they're rejoicing for being not a financial game changer. Again,
1: it's a positive.
2: It's a po- It means nothing. It's a positive.
1: Sure. I mean, what pos- if this means anything? In the end, none of it means wow. anything. Like oh, having more TV money oh great what what does that matter at the end of the I day? Know. It means you can pay a larger buyout when you fire Mel Tucker two years into his contract. <laughs> oh, like what what is this really doing for any of us? <laughs> is this <laughs> making things better for this anyone? No, Nihilist podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know my take on college realignment.
0: It It'll never bring you joy, Gonzaga, <laughs> <Ega. laughs>
1: no matter what conference you're in. <laughs>
2: You always want more.
1: The only real- the real conference realignment, is the friends we make along the way, and in some cases, the rivals.
2: Poor Gonzaga want to be rich. Rich Gonzaga want to be king, and the king Gonzaga won't be satisfied till it rules everything. Because speaking of rivals, there's going to be an
1: old fashioned one played on the football what field does it mean? this Saturday.
2: Win or lose, it doesn't change the course of history. Look. <laughs>
1: Some some you know boring games do change the course of history, and I think it's safe to say that last year's did because Jimmy Lake entered it as <laughs> the football coach of the Huskies, and he exited, it, and he never coached the Huskies wow. again. I didn't even think about that. It was you didn't Oregon. think about that.
2: I didn't. Re- I didn't remember that it was the Oregon game that that happened.
1: Not a great look. Not a great look, Jimmy. Oh, you, you think it was a tough week? <sighs> oh, Lord. Well. The Huskies are in a different place this year at seven and two, coming off of last week's Yeah,
2: we have to talk about that one first.
1: Thrilling. Wind moored, windswept oh. uh win over Oregon State last week. Now 24-21.
2: I, I had to say to you, this is this is a different type of husky team.
1: The maybe if you
2: look at Arizona State, it's the same type of Husky team. But that type of game that they won against Oregon State, that is a game that no matter who the coach is, right? Turn Willingham, Steve Sarkeesian, Chris Peterson, right? All of them. And Keith have, Gilbertson? I don't remember him. Not familiar.
0: <laughs>
2: uh,
1: all of those coaches. Oh, Should have I gone earlier with Who Made You President?
2: <laughs> <laughs> all of those coaches have lost that exact type of game. I don't even know why,
1: right? Why UW? Which is a school that plays in Seattle, Washington, a city that is not noted for its like warm, uh, uh, unstormy weather during the fall season. I really cannot don't... play in the elements. Can you? You brought up one game, which was. I mean, I don't think even the weather was that bad. I was, I was just remembering it's the kind Utah of game. Yeah, yeah,
2: Utah, like three years ago, right? That they was
1: kick... in two thousand eighteen. It was, it was Jake Browning's senior season. Yes. And it ultimately proved critical to them. That oh, was huge. Making the... Uh, or was that 2017? Maybe it was 2017 and it kept them alive for the Fiesta Bowl game. Mm. I think it was 2017.
2: But they got a completion to end the game, rushed the, rushed the kicking team on the, on the field, hit the field goal to win the game.
1: Yep. But I don't think weather
2: was a factor. So the games to me that I remember that are really, really, really horribly bad weather, right? There was... The back-to-back Oregon State games that we talked about way back in the day,
1: lost oh, both. Although, again, the record indicates only the first of those was actually that bad weather. The second was just Isaiah Stanback's injury was a cloud over that game. I'm sure it rained. Uh,
2: there was the game that Troy Williams started, I think, for... Yeah, that was in the wind, yes. And that was against... I want to say
1: Utah. I thought that was Utah also, where it was really, really windy. Yeah, lost that It was, was the Fiesta Bowl season that they won that game against Utah.
2: There was the Stanford game that you were sipping on hot
1: chocolate. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think there might have been... Maybe... I always reference the Stanford game. It was not during the 0-8 season. Oh. It was, I think, after the standback injury. I think it was that same year where uh, Richard Sherbin scored a touchdown, a game-winning touchdown. And was that it was bad just weather, freezing cold and, like, two terrible football teams. It, that, to me, is still the most miserable UW attendance really experience of my life. <laughs> uh, but you, the wind and thunder game against Cal...
2: Right, That went until like once in the end.
1: Right, They lost all of these games. And this was, of course, the wind plus uh, light outage.
2: Wind, light outage, rain, cold. This kind of had it all. And for the Huskies to come down and win that game and have the drive that they had at the end of that game, it was a little bit of like, okay, this team is built different. And Michael Penix Jr. on that drive, that was something where it was... He just poised the, the catch that they had. Cam Davis being a monster on that drive in general. It was something that I don't know how, how this felt in the stadium, but it felt different than this UW team that we've seen the entire game. For me, as somebody who's watched all of these games, I was just like, they're going to blow this at some point. Yep. You know, like if, if you've been there, if you really know, you do not believe that it's going to happen. And to win that, I think it was a difference maker. I think it was a
1: very good win for the Huskies. Yeah, I mean, to get slightly nihilist, again, it probably only mattered, like, which bowl they're going to end up in. But it was it was kind of improved a point. You're the
2: person who cares about bowls, though. I don't care about bowls at all. Oh, I mean, if you go, me, to, the, I if want go a, to the Las Vegas Bowl, I care about that. I want a multiple-hundred-team playoff, so... That's fair, but if all you're saying is all that matters is which bowl you go to, if all you're playing for in your perspective is which bowl you go to, that matters. But it also matters. They're not really recruiting against Oregon State, but to have a notch against Oregon State. I mean, Oregon just, State. two was, teams.
1: Oregon State was on the UW corner. Still is. Like they they both came into this game six and two. Oregon State was ranked. UW was not. Now UW is ranked. Oregon State is not. Yeah. Which is funny because UW actually dropped in FPI with that really? game. Yeah. Because it was close enough at home. So uh <laughs> it didn't matter, but it was a very good win. I Man, Troy Williams, eighteen of twenty-six for one hundred and thirty-nine yards and two interceptions in that game. Where that game was awful. It was.
2: It was I mean, I love the win, so it was fun. But
0: yeah,
1: we're starting in place of Siler Miles in that one. So
2: yeah, I thought I thought it was a big win. Well, thanks for telling me that it wasn't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, like, it's a good win. And the Huskies have a chance to win 10 games you're, in you're a season. You're really
2: going out of your way to explain why college football needs a larger playoff, though. By, by saying that you don't care about this, you're telling me they need a larger playoff. Or fewer bowl games, so it's more meaningful to get to a bowl.
1: Nobody even cares about these fucking bowl games anyway. It's like... That's because there's too many of them. Uh, Husky defense with that performance jumped up to 77th in FPI efficiency. It was the first time since... Uh, Week one that all five week one starters started again in the secondary. Though Mishael Powell still split time at cornerback coming back from his injury. Hard to know how much to credit them versus the win, but Oregon State managed just 87 yards on 19 pass attempts in this one. And after Damian Martinez and Deshaun Fenwick torched the Huskies on the ground earlier, they ended up the, allowing a reasonable 5.7 yards per carry. They also stopped Jack Coletto Wildcat run on key fourth and two at the Husky seven, got another fourth down stop in their own territory in the first half, and ultimately defensively allowed just 14 points, the other seven, of course, coming on a pick six. I
2: don't I'll- I mean, with the way that Oregon State was running the ball early, it was just like, they're, gonna, they're not
1: going to be stopped all game. It felt like it was going to be a long night. Well, unfortunately, there's a team to confess that might not be stopped. Uh, Oregon, under new head coach Dan Lanning, opened his uh, career with a 49-3 blowout loss against his former Georgia team in Atlanta, dropping the Ducks all the way out of the rankings for a week. But since then, they have won eight consecutive games, including beating two teams ranked in the top 12 at the time, BYU and UCLA, both Enots, and and coming back to beat Wazoo 44-41 on the road in their closest Pac-12 test. That's gotten Oregon all the way up to number six in the latest college football playoff rankings, with a good shot at the Pac-12's first playoff appearance since UW in 2016, if they can win out. Great. Despite Not going to be cheering for that. Despite Lanning's defensive background, the Ducks are winning with offense. They're number three in FPI efficiency on offense, number 44 on defense. They've scored at least 40 points in every game since the opener. And Bo Nix has been one of the nation's most effective quarterbacks, ranking sixth in QBR. Just a totally different quarterback than he was at Auburn, boosted his completion percentage from 61% to 73% and his yards per attempt from 7.1% to 9.1%. For comparison, Michael Penix Jr. is at 66.5% completions and 8.3 yards per attempt, respectively, this season. Uh, Nix has also run for 457 yards and 13 touchdowns. He's even beat Preserian's record. (laughs) (laughs) And even caught a touchdown last week against Colorado. It's 200-headed running back committee for Oregon with uh, Bucky Irving and Noah Whittington, both over six yards per carry. Not really, you know, multiple receivers that have been consistent threats. Troy Franklin, the only wide receiver with more than 340 receiving yards. Terrence Ferguson, like Franklin, also has five touchdowns. And Oregon does look to be getting healthier in defense this week after having some players out recently. Linebacker DJ Johnson, who has a team-high six sacks, missed last week's game, but Lanning said he should be available this week. Well, UW transfer Taki Taimani hasn't played since the UCLA win, but returned to practice this week. It's not great. (laughs) I mean, the UW defense has struggled on the road in the best of circumstances, and these are not the best of circumstances. The Oregon offense is about the worst of circumstances.
2: I was feeling a lot better about this game before you told me about Oregon. <laughs> what,
1: what did you think Oregon was doing when they were I thought it game? was smoke and mirrors. Oh, uh, it is not smoke
2: and mirrors. I, I thought it was they played. A, they played all the reasonably good teams at home, and then everybody else they played is pretty bad. Is that not? It's still true. I mean, that is accurate.
1: Yes, but they're just actually been good while doing that. Also, it turns out that this game is is going to be played nuts and is, in a tough break.
2: Is Bonix a senior?
1: Uh, I believe he has one more year of potential eligibility. I swear to God, we've been playing Bonix forever. Well, it turns out we have not played Bonix before.
2: That wasn't Bonix we played?
1: No. It was in, Jared Stidham.
2: In his freshman year? No. That was Jared Stidham? Yeah. No way. That was Bonix. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, I could go double-check this. Go double-check that. That was Bo Nix who started that game but against UW at Auburn. This was the
1: 2018 season, not the 2019 season. So, yes, it was Jared Stidham who went 26 of 36 for 273 yards and a touchdown.
2: Wow, that was Bo Nix.
1: <laughs> it really wasn't? It wasn't. I thought it was, too. That I cannot like, be true. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, another chance to play Bo Nix. But, nope, This not is the like. Case.
2: I wonder... There have to be other people out there of the same Mandela effect. <laughs> I'm sure there are. I look forward Please let us know on I, Twitter. I remember Bonix beating the Huskies
1: in week one <laughs> in a game that... We felt like we were in it for a second. We were in. Yeah. We're competitive. Turned out that Auburn team was not very good. They were top... I think top ten at the time, but... Uh, so Bonix played 3 years at Auburn before transferring this past year. So he will have a year of eligibility remaining. I don't know if he's an NFL prospect.
2: Do you know what's funny? I think the game that we're remembering was Bonix playing against Oregon. Oregon. Yes, no, he played against Oregon, yeah. And he I remember him missing a throw like he overthrew somebody to lose the game. Wow, that's actually that can't count. be true
1: because they won. They won the game. Auburn won. Auburn won, but he went thirteen of thirty-one for one hundred and seventy-seven. Okay, I remember him
2: making some bad throws. So the way that we're Mandela effect remembering this was that he didn't play against us, but he played
1: against the team that
2: he's currently on.
1: He also threw the winning touchdown with nine seconds left to play in that one. Maybe, th- maybe that's what
2: I'm remembering. Wow. Yes. That's really weird. You really put it all together here. Well, it was a brutal loss that the Huskies suffered to Bonix the first time. <laughs> but it's nice to have revenge. A chance at revenge. Uh I I truly don't know. <laughs> I just I, There was no point in that game on Saturday or on Friday, in fact, against Oregon State. That outside of the wind, I was like yeah, this defense is playing well. They only gave up 14 points in the end. They made some plays. They did their thing. But the reality is... I mean, to me, it was just kind of impossible to tell. Uh, yeah. And then Oregon State team is obviously not as good as Oregon. Oh, or-
1: wow. Oh, wow? Ponix landed at number six in Mel Kiefer's latest rankings, apparently. There you go. That's future Seahawks Boenix to you. Um, <laughs> we disturb it. It's not
2: a need. <laughs> That's true. No, they should still draft a quarterback, maybe. Just not in the first round. If he slips. Okay. He's number six overall or number six quarterback? Uh, unclear. Okay. From the story that I read. uh, I I just don't see how, if we're talking about the number three team in FPI offensive efficiency, that this UW team is going to give up any less than 40 points.
1: I mean, again, they've scored 40 points every week. So the Huskies are going to need to score a lot of points.
2: I think they can do it. There is yeah, something about... I agree with that. The... The methodical nature of the Kaelin DeBoer-Michael Penix offense, right? Where they can kind of just take their time to impose their will, but Michael Penix needs to play basically a mistake-free game.
1: Yeah, in no, this number run. six QB for the class wouldn't shock me if he was a day two pick. There you go. That's
2: that's future Seattle quarterback, Bo Nix.
1: I would take it. Oh, yeah.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, on under Geno for a couple years. I mean, he's no Vernon Adams, but...
2: But Michael Penix is going to have to have a near-perfect game. You know, he can't do stuff like, there can't be a pick-six. And that's been the ways that they've lost these games, maybe aside from Arizona State. I don't even, I don't I was watching baseball. <laughs> I don't know how they lost. Everybody went to the desert, they came back with a loss. But, but the UCLA game, Sorry. it was just a couple of moments. How it, it was, always seems to go for UW. It was a couple of plays. I mean, that's how it was against Arizona State, too, I think. And if, if Michael Penix plays a perfect game, I think the Huskies can be in it, but I that's think, what mean, it's going yeah, to. Take.
1: They can they can score enough to stay to stay with Oregon in a shootout. I mean, we saw Wazoo do it again. It was at home, but I still don't know how done. Wazoo lost that game. That's
2: why I think I've been so down. I mean, I haven't watched Oregon outside of. I didn't watch the opening game either.
1: See, I watched the UCLA first half, and they were like so they good were in that monster. they were a machine.
2: I mean, UCLA is probably the team that's closest to the Huskies in the Pac-12
1: right now. I mean, Oregon State is the team, but among the teams that Oregon has played, yes. yes. Uh, And what was the final of that game? Uh, What was the final of that game? It was 45-30. Okay. So I think that's probably about what Vegas is thinking. The Huskies are 13.5-point underdogs here.
2: I mean, it, it honestly feels right. I don't... Uh, but yeah, the Oregon, the, or-, or the Wazoo game was the only game that I really watched Oregon and I just watched it and I was like, I don't know how this happened.
1: And they scored that one, by the way, it was 31 to 13 at halftime. Wazoo was leading. No, no, that's, no, or- yeah. that's Oregon was leading Oregon UCLA. Was leading UCLA. Okay.
2: I mean, Wazoo should have won the game. Yeah. They fully cooked it. So it can be done. Oregon can be beaten. They're not that scary of a team. But, again, Michael Penix is going to have to play near perfect. They're going to have to come up with a couple of stops along the way. Maybe this defense is good enough. We haven't really seen it yet. I, I'm not taking too much from that victory against Oregon State just yet. It was at home. It was strange weather Friday night. We'll, we will fully
1: see. Uh, led 34-22 in the fourth quarter. So... Uh, would you give a chance of victory there? I think it's like a 38%. Well, that's still way too high. I'm going like 25%. I would just really love to win. It is kind of amazing because like on the one hand, like, yes, Oregon has been a dramatically better program than UW over the past two decades. So of course they've won the majority of the games, but also like... Some of the UW has just never pulled an upset. Basically, the only two years they won, they were a clearly better team than Oregon. And they were also probably a better team than Oregon in 2018, but just lost in overtime on the road with uh, a missed field goal late in there. The like Oregon State sometimes just pulls an upset over Oregon, even though they're, they're clearly not as good of a team, including in the 2020 meeting that happened. And that just has never happened for UW. So it would be great if this were the time. I just, I look at this and I'm like... I mean, I shouldn't say never because the back in the Northwest Championship year, it did happen. They've won a lot on the
2: road. I will give them that. They've, they've won a lot of games on the road. But how has BYU played since then? I just...
1: BYU is 5-5. Five five. I
2: don't... Yeah, they were ranked number 12 at the
1: time, but, but they're again, not a good team. Again, advanced stats still put Oregon in the same spot. I just don't feel like it's been that impressive of a season. But the, the but here's the thing about it is that what's the reason that Oregon usually doesn't make the playoff? What do you mean doesn't usually make the playoff? They've never been they've haven't sniffed it in years. But they've been a very good team over this entire span. Okay. Like if you take aside the take away the Alabama Clemson axis of, you know, dominance uh huh. Oregon has been as good as any program in the country besides those two okay. over the past decade. You don't think that's accurate? Ohio State. Ohio State. Okay, maybe we can throw them in there. And but Ohio State doesn't always make the playoff either. But Oregon always loses to some shitty Pac-12 team. Yeah, that's what the Pac-12 is. But they haven't done that this year. That's why it's been a good season. There's three weeks left. I guess they're only 11th in FPI. They're, no, they're not as good as I thought they were in FPI. But
2: it's not like they there's... lost 49. I get it. Georgia's the best team in the country pretty clearly by far. But like they are still 46 points worse than Georgia.
1: Yeah, that's one game. I don't think they're actually 46 points worse than Georgia. Okay. But they beat Wazoo by three. I don't know. You're, again, you're over indexing on those two games. I mean, if you want to go didn't transit, wash is-
2: Stanford at home, like it was 18
1: points. I don't know. I, I think that's a you're, you're asking Oregon a lot. Oregon has given up points.
2: Yeah, and Oregon, it really I mean, is just going about to give
1: up points. I, I mean, I think the final will be something like forty-five to thirty. <sighs> also, they tend to lead all these games big early. Like Stanford, it was thirty-one to three at halftime.
2: Okay. So, all right. Well, we'll see. I think I think that UW is the best team they have played since Georgia. Yeah, I think that's probably I true. I still I still think UW is a better team than UCLA.
1: As FPI I see that I think they probably got I think they're very close I uh, know UCLA is up to 21st so UCLA is pretty substantially better so no Where I, do they I have us? that comment 30th 30th
2: yeah We'll see. So we'll see again I, I think I, I'm feeling good about that percentage chances. There's a chance of winning this game. We're not going to go into this and and be like it's there's there's no way.
1: there's a chance that things go sideways. Yeah, there's definitely been some no hope years for UW playing Utah Oregon. And I don't think this is one of those. If this, this was at is more, home,
2: I would think it was about a fifty fifty game.
1: But well, it wouldn't be that. But it would be it would be a competitive game for sure. All right, on that note, if you've made it through the two plus hours <laughs> of us podcasting.
2: Let us know if you remember that bonix victory. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks.